You are listening to a Nerd Room Podcast, a member of the Star Wars Commonwealth Podcast Network. Be sure to check out more from the Star Wars Commonwealth on the web at StarWarsCommonwealth.com and take your first steps into a larger world. Hey everyone, and welcome to Nerd Room. We talk all things Star Wars, Marvel, and DC. This episode number 121, we're discussing Solo, a Star Wars story. I'm one of your host, Tim. I'm Troy. And I'm Sanjay. Gentlemen, welcome back to the review table. We are here to discuss Solo. This is the 10th Star Wars film, the second standalone, and the fourth release under the Disney banner. Wow. How does it feel? How does it feel to be... In this post-Solo world, a world where fandom seems more divided than ever, (laughs) which confuses me. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, being a DC fan, this whole thing sounds awfully familiar to me. (laughs) Right at home here. Yeah, I was like, you know, normally Star Wars reviews were like, all right, lots of positive things to talk about. And in this case, the movie itself may be positive. But that box office number, man, I, I knew I should have taken Black Panther. Yes. Like, that's the that's a $500 million mistake. Yes. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, man. No, I feel I feel good, man. You know, I feel really good because uh, this movie uh, was it was a little bit of a, I don't want to say a game changer, but man, I really did enjoy this film. And we'll, we'll get into it, obviously. But um, yeah, I'm getting a little taste of a Last Jedi kind of backlash here where it's the 50 50 audience it's very divided which is weird because i thought this was gonna be the movie that brought us all together in star wars again so yeah it's, it's been called a potential palate cleanser for mm-hmm. fandom that that's mm-hmm. how i saw it going into this and you know here we didn't have that same visceral reaction towards the last jedi yeah we had some issues with it there was definitely some flaws there some maybe bigger flaws than we were expecting but in the day i think holistically it fits within the universe yeah and this one seemed to fit even better like, oh, I can't yeah. believe, I think coming out of our theater, everyone I talked to was given high fives. There was clapping in the theater, yeah. both at the start and at the end. Everyone seemed quite high on this film. No one was coming out being like, eh, I really didn't like that. Even the crew we went with, everyone was overly positive yep. about how much they enjoyed the film. And I, in the past, even with The Last Jedi, because we usually go with about 15, 20 people, it was a bit more divided. Oh, yeah. We yeah. came out of the last Jedi. This one, none of that, and I'm I'm quite surprised that that fandom has reacted in this way, and the general population has reacted in this way. It's for me personally, kind of going initial reactions here, spoiler free. I really loved it. I I thought this movie was an absolute blast. It all developed into what I would consider like the spirit of Star Wars. There there was something special there. I thought, you know, I think the characters killed it. It felt like Han Solo. Like I never once sat there and was like. Uh, this doesn't feel like Harrison yeah. Ford. I, I just saw Han Solo the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right off the bat, I felt that that presence of Han Solo, Harrison Ford. But the biggest thing I took away from this film is I felt like this is the first time ever that we've almost got a uh, like a comic book, you know, five part miniseries in a movie form yes. where this is a story in the Star Wars world, you know, on the big screen. Uh, we didn't get that with Rogue One. Rogue One still felt very connected to the saga films with the Empire's presence being there and, you know, Vader being at a certain point in his career as, as Vader, you got that sense of the saga films, whereas this really felt like, you know, the Empire's arching over, but you, that's not where the tension is. It's all about Solo yeah. and his little journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. funny you say that because I was sitting there the whole movie feeling like, this feels like a five-part 
miniseries on TV that I'm watching. I never, like, it wasn't the fact that the scope wasn't big enough to be on the big screen. The story in itself was was there, but I always felt like I was watching a a show. Yeah. Just like a sequential show. And so it's funny you bring that up about being a five-part kind of comic book miniseries set within the Star Wars universe. I felt the exact same way, but I took it, instead of comic books, I took it more as, as a TV show. Yeah, a very, very expensive TV show. Yes, <laughs> extremely expensive TV show. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember sitting in the theater with you, Troy. You mm-hmm. sat next to me. And I just, like, I haven't seen anyone happier at a movie in a long time. Yeah, you were, probably like, homecoming. I felt that good. Yeah, you're yeah. clapping, like, laughing, Give me those smiling. Nudges, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, was, it was a nice experience. Yeah, man. Well, and then my wife had the, the same reaction as you're having right now with, with Troy, is that I was holding her hand, and I'm squeezing it, and squeezing it, and I'm laughing, <laughs> and I'm clapping, and I'm I'm looking down at Troy at parts. I'm like, what, like, especially the part. Oh, yeah. And I had, like, a blast. Like, I came out of there as happy as it was coming out of Infinity War. Yes. Like I had a great movie watching experience and that's exactly what I wanted. And I don't know if it's because we've disconnected ourselves so far away from the toxicity of that small group of fandom. Yeah. I don't pay any attention to it. Yeah. So I really, really had a great experience with this film and I'm, I'm sad that other people didn't feel the <laughs> same way. Yeah. You know, like as far as the storytelling goes for this whole thing, I think Overall, we kind of landed on most of the ideas, kind of how this is going to develop. It was, and I said this to my wife on our way out, it was a, a very predictable story told with unpredictable or told in an unpredictable way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was what was exciting to me. It's like, I kind of, we kind of knew what was coming. Like, he's going to meet Chewie. He's going to do this. This is going to happen. But then they throw all these kind of curveballs into it. And that, to me, makes it good storytelling. The fact that we didn't nail everything. Yes. Kind of walking into this. Yeah, I mean, for the first time in history, Star Wars has that hidden gem film, if you will. 10, 15 years down the road, you know, this is going to be a movie that people who are just getting into Star Wars might, like, glance over, but then, you know, us who've seen it will be like, no, 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 you don't want to miss this one. It's the hidden gem, so... It's pretty crazy to see that Star Wars has a hidden gem film because, like, it's so big. And, you know, the, the previous hidden gem film was the holiday special, probably. <laughs> Empire. <laughs> no, so I think generally we all really enjoyed this film. We all had a good time in it. We had a good viewing experience. And, yeah, there might be a few things we talked through that we said, oh, maybe you could have took this in that direction. But for me personally, I don't – there's nothing that glaringly stands out as, like, whoa – like, what did they do here? Like, right. this makes no sense. This was clearly something that evolved out of having two separate directors or having limited time to pull something together. I didn't catch any of that. Like, Ron Howard absolutely nailed this. Yes. I, you can't tell that this was shot in half the amount of time and had half the amount of time in post-production. Like, this seems like a relatively seamless film. Mm-hmm. Did you guys get that same vibe from it? Yeah, absolutely I did. Yeah, I never got that sense of the... I hate to go back to it, but the Justice League, you know, kind of half and half movie going experience there. This felt right, or Ryan Johnson. This felt Ron Howard all the way. Thankfully for me, it didn't feel like Ryan Johnson because I was engaged uh, throughout the whole film. You yeah. know, I never had those moments that took me out, which The Last Jedi had quite a bit of those, which is also which helped my experience a lot because I really brought down my expectations a lot mm-hmm. going into this film. I'm one of those people out there that felt like we didn't need a Star or a Han Solo film, but I'd go and support a Star Wars film, obviously, anyways. But man, this this film really turned it around for me. Yeah. How about you, Sanjay? Like, coming out of the theater, being kind of the guy that's in fandom, but a little bit more sidestep from it than Troy and I. Like, how did you feel coming out of the theater? Yeah, I was pretty positive on this film coming out of the theater. Like, so much of it worked for me. And it definitely did seem like it was one director. You didn't really get a lot of tonal shifts uh, throughout the movie where you have one scene and then another scene that don't really fit together. Like, it seemed to flow pretty well, actually. 
Um, and I was actually quite impressed with that because, you know, of all the behind the scenes drama, I was expecting this to be kind of a train wreck, to be honest with you. And going in, I was like, whoa, this is actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and going back to that, that's a, a great segue into kind of the overall development of this film, how we saw this unfold. So in 2013, Bob Iger announces that we're getting standalone films. They're all rumored to be a FET film and a solo film. We end up getting Rogue One and Solo at the end of the day. And now we're hearing rumors that James Mangold is on for Boba Fett film. So we'll see how that goes. But it wasn't until July 2015 that Lucas did announce, or Lucasfilm, sorry, did announce this anthology idea or a Star Wars story and that Han Solo was going to be on tap for a solo outing, going back and revisiting a younger version of a very popular character. So they didn't quite do that in Rogue One. So again, this is another step away from the comfort zone. There's first time they're going away and focusing a story really on a original trilogy character and not having the Force or the Skywalkers or Vader really be the focal point of it. So I like the direction that they took with this or that they set up to take with this. This was that risk we're looking for them to take. Although it's still in that New Hope era or between yeah. Revenge of the Sith and New Hope era kind of comfort zone, this was a step away from it all. Empire, like you said, Troy, wasn't the focus. Right. It's about kind of the underbelly, more so even than Rogue One, of the Star Wars universe. And the first directors brought on board were Lord and Miller. Now, the way this all evolved is, is pretty crazy because they started shooting this on January 30th, 2017. And the directors and Lucasfilm parted ways due to creative differences on June 20th, 2017, so about six months into the shoot. So when you look at what they completed in that six month, that was about 85% of the film. Wow. So they're getting ready to step into post-production at this time. Now, Ron Howard steps into the mix, and they're talking about him reshooting you know, 20 30% of the film, taking what they did and really putting the bow on this thing. But he ended up shooting 70-plus percent was kind of the overall, at least the consistent number that was thrown out there. And he completed that filming on October 17th, 2017, and completed post-production on April 22nd, 2018. So one month before the release of the film, they completed the post-production. Oh my goodness. Usually these things are in the bag like two, three months before. Oh, for sure. And they start rolling out the big marketing campaign. For reference, Avengers Infinity War started shooting just before this and finished in like March or April. Wow. Of 2017. Wow. <laughs> so it's pretty crazy to see how much turmoil there was behind the scenes. And the fact they brought in someone like Ron Howard, kind of a Hollywood mainstay, to bring this and cross the finish line. This thing, in, in all rights and on paper, should have been an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. This shouldn't have made any sense. It shouldn't have flowed. There, yeah, I, I have the utmost confidence in Lucasfilm, but this is a lot to do. To reshoot a film, and it's not like you're reshooting a film where you have an established universe to lean on. Like, yes, you do have Star Wars. I'm talking more in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So right. it just seemed to me that this had a lot going against it. And now you weigh that against the idea of its release date and how much pressure there is to get it out for that May 25th. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really incredible that they're actually able to produce something that the three of us really enjoyed. Because yeah. I think any other real franchise would have struggled. I think even Marvel would have struggled with something like this. Like the closest they've ever come is the Ant-Man thing when the right. Edgar Wright got punted or right. left. But they still had a lot of time because they were just going in to shooting. It wasn't, they hadn't started yet. This this guy came in over halfway through 
the scheduling or when they're supposed to be going to post-production and reshot the whole film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, with the MCU, they just never get to these situations. You know, we just mm-hmm. don't see it. I mean, you mentioned the Edgar Wright kind of thing, but that was a little different because that movie was in development for years and yeah. years. And then by the time the MCU was established, it's just a different kind of uh, movie universe in, in total. So um, it's interesting to see that they did get this movie off, but it's, again, falls back to the money. It's super expensive what they've done here, much like the Justice League. It's a very expensive to reshoot a film, especially 75, 80% of the film. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. 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 And then that, what that amounts to, though, is Solo, A Star Wars Story being the most expensive Star Wars movie ever made. Well, So this this rumored to have cost about $250 million, and that includes all of the reshoots, bring on Howard, bring back all the actors, and that just edges out The Force Awakens' $245 million price tag to produce that film, which scale-wise is a lot bigger. Yeah. See, and that probably shows why we've seen a lack in the marketing because yes. normally with the marketing budget that's almost double right yeah. so with the marketing that's probably why they scaled back a lot in the marketing because we weren't getting anything for the longest time no one is it was really just trailers yep like there wasn't much more from that you didn't see the same amount of tie-ins that you saw with rogue one like i haven't seen pez dispenser you didn't see there wasn't even a cup yeah. at cineplex right yeah. there was no tie-ins this we have yet to see a six inch black series solo figure swinging from the pegs yeah. you're starting to see dribbles of the two packs i haven't seen any three three quarter inch but when you look at the scale of the marketing behind lucasfilm and star wars for a standalone in rogue one and for the saga films it's been absolutely massive you can't look anywhere and not see a star wars tie-in yeah. i'm struggling to find anything like i've only bought two funko pops that's the only things i've bought from solo a star wars story and that's not because i'm trying to not buy things it's because they're not there right so i think you're right troy that's a good point that they may have scaled back the marketing and tried to rely more on the brand that was already out there from the last jedi from the star wars name to sell this film and use kind of the word of mouth from trailers use people like us podcasters use youtube to promote this film in a more grassroots way and it didn't seem to work as well maybe as they're expecting because overall the critical reception of this film and the fandom reception is i'm gonna say lukewarm at best Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think there is a real polarized part of fandom where and i'm seeing this through the majority of the commonwealth almost everyone i talk to really love this film first viewing came out just had a blast it wasn't like the last jedi when you came out thinking did I like that or <laughs> didn't I like? I don't. I need a second viewing. I don't need a second viewing to tell you that I love this film. I want to see it again. I had an absolute blast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the critical reception end of it here was also something kind of funny because this is really the first time we're seeing the critics really hammer down on a Star Wars film. I went and read through a lot of the Rotten Tomato stuff, and I questioned if I was seeing the same movie as some of these right. guys. Like I, they're talking about like no story. There's no character development here. The whole narrative is a mess. This movie's all over the place. I didn't get any of that. Like, did you guys get that? Like, do you guys see where the critics are coming from? Like, without spoilers here, we're still in our spoiler section. But do you think there's a basis for kind of this radical shift? Like, when we're looking at Rotten Tomatoes, got 70%, not fresh rating, I don't think, at 70%. And audience score is 60%. Well, I think the audience score is a little wonky. Because yeah. there's that group of people that are trying to, like, boycott Star Wars that are bringing it down. That's not like a realistic representation, I don't feel. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. No. So what about the critical, like the, the <clears throat> critics' reception? Like, 
I, I, I'm, there's a gap. There's something I'm missing here. Yeah, it's really weird because when you look at the critics, I feel like what they're dinging Solo with is what they were praising Last Jedi with. Like it kind of contradicts itself. So it's really weird when I see the, the comparisons between the two mm-hmm. films. So I just don't really get it. Um, going back to what you're mentioning too, with uh, with the the bots and the fanboys out there, those weird ones that are like boycotting the film. It's it's really crazy because they are starting to put like a big force in in this in this in this movie franchise i don't know what they're really trying to do by boycotting this this whole industry um but it's risen risen since the last jedi which is just completely silly in my opinion well and that's something that we've really strayed away from on the podcast talking about because it's not even something i want to acknowledge right because i think it's absolutely ridiculous it's fine if you don't like something yeah but you don't have to get on twitter you don't have to kind of try to boycott or put this whole movement out there to try to shift the focus away from this mm-hmm. and the thing that drove me nuts is when we're talking about the box office here these guys think that they're they were the reason it yeah. did poorly in the box office <laughs> which i think is crazy because i think it's such a small minority of people that are trying to force lucasfilm or in their heads force lucasfilm in a certain direction because they're upset with how things are being treated and i think they're stewarding this franchise as best as ever yeah. Like, yeah, sure, there's little things that you can change, but you can say that about any franchise, Marvel, DC, whatever. It's never going to be exactly what you want it to be, but mm-hmm. you just have to hope that they're doing good things, putting out good, fun films, and something that you can actually latch on to. And I think Solo is very much that. It is a film based around a character with a whole bunch of fantastic references in it. And at the end of the day, it's a lot of fun. Yep. That's yeah. what we wanted out of this film. This is the kind of that comedic tone that they were looking for. Not so much the Ace Ventura stuff, yeah. <laughs> but really it had a different tone to it. And that's the tone I want to see in a live action TV show. Yeah. I want to see something with a bit of levity, a bit more lighthearted, kind of give me a bit more of that Marvel-esque filmmaking. I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I'd say the humor and the tone fits between like a Rogue One and a Force Awakens. It's like that yeah. nice happy medium between the two. Yeah. It's not hitting you over the head with a lot of jokes, but also can get serious when it needs to. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and you know, you, you mentioned about the Star Wars and like some of the uh, the fans um, were upset with like the direction Star Wars is going. You know, I really think that brings down, like if you look at the big franchise, like the big three right now, Star Wars, Marvel, and DC... Star Wars and DC, they have these like original trilogies. We have the Nolan trilogy and then the OG Star Wars trilogy that were so good that no matter what comes after it, nothing can compare to it. You know what I mean? Like it's it's like this overarching, it's almost like a bad thing in a way that like movies come out and if they're good, they're like, yeah, they were good, but they're nothing compared to the originals. Mm. Then you look at Marvel, they don't have that. They have the no. luxury of just being fresh. 2008 was the first Iron Man film. Captain America had some others, but they were terrible in the 90s and 70s. So, like, Marvel, they don't have that. So, like, they come out and they're good movies. People are like, yeah, I really like that. And they don't compare it to anything in the past. So, I think if you look at the fandoms on the internet, that's a big reason why Star Wars and DC are kind of in the same boat right now. It's crazy to say. And then on the other side, you have Marvel, which is flourishing um, because they don't have that weight of uh, past expectations. Yeah, and expectations is a big thing I want to talk about here with the box office. Because I think that may have really factored into the number that we're seeing relative to what else we've seen in the past with the last three movies. Now, box office, guys. Like, this <laughs> this is something that, that we really do focus in on here in the room. Yeah. This is something that we all like to follow. We have our, our fantasy draft for the year where we've individually picked different films. <laughs> and it's a bit of a barometer for 
not so much how the franchise is doing, but it, it's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. And a lot of people watch this. But this this film, this this is actually incredible results. The fact that it made as its final tally 84 just under 85 million dollars domestically and worldwide it only pulled 150 million dollars so that makes 65 million dollars from the foreign markets now for comparison the kind of the flat comparison that we can do is rogue one rogue one in its opening weekend made 155 million dollars so almost double domestically and 290 million dollars worldwide so again almost doubling the take of solo a star wars story using a direct comparison we can't compare these two the saga films now what this does is put solo as the fifth highest opener in the star wars universe that puts it behind force awakens last jedi of course but also rogue one and revenge of the sith this only made three million dollars more than the release of episode two attack of the clones in what was it 2002 wow and that's unadjusted wow it made more than the clone wars animated film Yes, (laughs) Yes, it's <laughs> all that matters. Slightly more for now. <laughs> and now, when you compare that to the the Memorial Day, so this is a, a big weekend in the U.S., big holiday weekend. So you see a lot of movies fall into this market or into this space. But traditionally, it hasn't been a big like it's not like Christmas time or the first weekend in May or anything like that. This isn't where you stick a movie if you want it to really flourish. It seems I don't know. I'm making kind of a leap here, but we do see quite a few over $100 million debuts. But this is the seventh highest grossing Memorial Day weekend of all time. That's the four-day weekend, pulling in $103 million. So it took four days to get over the $100 million mark. This was behind movies like Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of Crystal Skull, X-Men The Last Stand, X-Men Days of Future Past, The Hangover Part 2. This this movie fell in behind all of those for the four-day take on the Memorial Weekend. Now, from us here, that isn't particularly a reflection of how good the movie is, but it definitely means something. Mm -hmm. And we're going to dig into that a little bit because you even look at the foreign markets, China in particular. We spoke a couple weeks ago about how well Infinity War did there with a $200 million debut, one of the biggest of all time in China. Solo debut to $10 million in China. That's Which nothing. is the second largest market on the planet outside the domestic Canada, U.S. And traditionally, though, China hasn't been a big market for Star Wars. Rogue One only did $30 million in opening weekend. The Last Jedi only did $28 million in opening weekend. So it's not too far off in the Chinese market. For whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to land there. I don't know if they don't have the legacy of the original trilogy. They don't have the generations of fandom there because this is all relatively new to them. Mm -hmm. But you look at Marvel, who does exceedingly well there, they're only relying on 2008 a point that you mentioned too, Sanjay. So it's interesting to see how China isn't really receptive to Star Wars, the second biggest market (laughs) on the planet. So that really puts a dent in their foreign take. Like, Infinity War almost made as much in China as Solo did in its entire foreign or worldwide take on its opening weekend. Yeah. Which is crazy when you put those things into perspective. Yeah, yeah I mean, $10 million from China, like, that's that's nothing. Like, nope. $10 million? And then, like, so $65 million, and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this opened pretty much everywhere except Japan? Yeah, everywhere except for Japan. That's, that's also very rare. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That, that's even a bit more... <laughs> weight towards the idea that this didn't perform on a worldwide basis at like really at all 
Like comparing it to past Star Wars films, Marvel films, even DC films. Yeah. Like Justice League opened bigger than this. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Puts a smile on my face, but it's crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, like you look at some franchises that get saved by the foreign markets, like a Transformers, yes. Pirates of the Caribbean, Fast and the Furious, Fast and the Furious, yeah, Terminator. I mean, yeah, Terminator. Yeah. Like those markets can really boost a franchise. So, you know, seeing these results as a Star Wars fan and as someone who goes to see a Star Wars movie makes me a little bit worried about what's going to come down the pipeline next because no one likes to lose money and no one likes to yeah no one likes to lose millions of dollars and this is probably going to be tens of millions of dollars lost when it's all said it may break even yeah and that may just get it there like the foreign market may just get it yeah well yeah yeah, to break even they'd have to do over four at least five probably closer probably close to six Five, six by the time you've yeah. paid out cinemas and all that. Yeah. yeah. yeah I don't think they're going to do it. Because, like, Justice League, like, I think, yeah. just broke even. And that was, like, 660. Did yeah. they break even? It was, like, close. Like, I don't know if they did or not. It's, like, one way or another. But they're, mm-hmm. like, I think they may have even lost money, to be honest with you. So, like, they, they, did. they did 660 on a $300 million budget. Yeah. So, yeah, you're so, talking that between five and 600 huge, at least. Pretty huge yeah. leap, especially when you look at everything else coming down the pipeline, especially your movie, um, Jurassic Park, yeah. Credibles, all that, all those things coming out. They're going to cripple it. And yeah. Deadpool and, and Infinity War have done that. And, yeah. and I think that that's good because I think that's a good segue into let's let's talk about the reasons why the, this didn't land at the box office. Yeah. So I've got a few listed here. So okay. one that's been put out there is that it was too close to The Last Jedi. So we're five months removed from our last Star Wars film. The first time ever we've had two Star Wars films this close together. We, we've gone back and forth about this for months. Sanjay even completed his bet <laughs> dressing as Chewbacca. Low expectations. Really well done. Check out a Twitter yeah. feed for that. <laughs> but he was so confident in the fact that they would not put a Star Wars film this close to another or this close to Infinity War mm-hmm. that he made a bet that he dresses Chewbacca because we all expected and we all wanted this to be moved to December. Right. Now, do you guys agree with that? Because like you look at Thor to Black Panther to Infinity War, there's three months between each one of those films. We've gotten in the last nine months, three Marvel films. Gnome seems to be tired of those. So personally, I don't think this has any bearing. It's too close to watch that. In far as far as the Star Wars universe, the Star Wars franchise is concerned, we'll talk about the effects maybe of the Last Jedi on it in a different context. Mm-hmm. But do you think it's just too close? It, can Star Wars release two movies a year? Oh, well, as silly as Sanjay looked that day, I, I think Disney <laughs> should have listened to him. Because, right, um, Bob Iger. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy. Just uh, give me a call. Because you you made some good examples. What we had Spider Man, we had um, Thor. Ragnarok, and then we had Black Panther, obviously. Yeah, and then not even two months later or whatever, we got Ragnar- Infinity War. Infinity War, yeah. right? Like two back to back. 200 plus million dollar opening. Exactly. The thing is what Marvel has over Star Wars is the reputation. They're yes. they're it's they're incredible. They're killing it. Mm-hmm. Everybody loved Spidey for the most part. Everybody loved Thor. Obviously a lot of people liked uh, Black Panther <laughs> yeah. and then Infinity War just killed it whereas they didn't know what the outcome of Last Jedi was going to be and I feel like Disney was a little full of themselves because they had high expectations for that film and clearly there was some backlash. So a lot of people probably jump ship and didn't necessarily want to support this film i don't think disney's ready to do two films a year because basically you know having those films that close it's it's two films a year so um i think those that's one of the many factors that hurt this film yeah yeah so i think it's not necessarily the fact that they released them so close but it's the type of film that they released if you look at marvel they were pushing like this forward narrative that they were building up to infinity war so you had homecoming building upon and then you had Ragnarok, then you had Black Panther. They all built up into Infinity War, 
with Star Wars, you had Last Jedi, so you're building up towards Episode Nine. But then you go back in time, like a hundred years, or, or like I don't even know how many <laughs> years. You know what I mean? To like before Episode Four or whatever, and then you have this prequel of a character that died in The Force Awakens. Yeah. So his story is never going to continue forward. You know, if they had done The Last Jedi and then maybe did a movie in between The Last Jedi and Episode Nine, something to build that narrative forward, maybe it would have done a little bit better because then people would have seen The Last Jedi and then been like, okay, there's this. And then we can build up to Episode Nine. It would be like if Disney or Marvel put out, you know, Ragnarok, but then they like went back and did like a prequel, like before Captain America, you know, like before... um and it didn't like connect like if you had the first Avenger and it didn't really connect and then that was placed there. We're going to see this with Ant-Man and the Wasp and Captain Marvel though. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. But they still like are connected in yes. a way. Well, yeah. See, you pick up a good point because when you watch Last Jedi even for the general audience or not, there is no mention of Han Solo. Like you, mm-hmm. you got nothing. And then when we get the Han Solo film, we're, we're lacking marketing. So we're, we're getting no marketing. Of a, of, a, of a Han Solo film coming up. We got zero mention of Han Solo in The Last Jedi. So people are like, what's even going on? And yeah. then the timeline's all out of whack. Where what you mentioned, it makes sense. Even with Ant-Man and the Wasp, at least in Infinity, where we hear mentions yeah. Yeah. of Ant-Man, we have an idea where he is. And again, this and these movies are like one big commercial, one big trailer pumping up the next film anyways. Well, and your point is well taken there because they've done a really good job even with the promotion of Ant-Man and the Wasp. They yeah. had featurettes with the Infinity War cast being like, mm-hmm. where was Ant-Man and the Wasp? Exactly. Where's right. the trailer? Don't yeah. forget that this all happens before just after civil war and before infinity war so they've already put that out there like yes. look guys this is non-sequential storytelling for the most part the first time in marvel with the exception of the first avenger but it's one of my points here is non-sequential storytelling yeah. so is the fam- familiarity with the fan base or the general population which is a bit more relied upon for these big openings like is the barrier for entry for these standalones too high are people just kind of ignorant to the fact that this is a Star Wars film. Oh, it's probably something I can pass because it doesn't have Luke Skywalker. It's not a right. big saga film because mm-hmm. the marketing is another big play on this because we usually have quite a substantial crew and we had a lot of people that came with us, 12 or 15 people. But some of the, the real diehards that come every time passed on this opening weekend. Yeah. We had probably three or four guys that usually come with their wives that were like, ah, you know, I saw Infinity War with you guys. Maybe I'll catch it a couple weeks later. Let me, I had a couple guys saying, Tim, I'll catch, catch it on your second viewing. Wow. So people were willing to pass on this film because they weren't overly interested in seeing this story. And I don't think that is all of fandom or all the people on the periphery, but it's, it's definitely weighed into this mm-hmm. because you look at the box office, the people just aren't going. And there's a couple other things here we could talk about, like placement in the release schedule. Too close to Infinity War, too close to, to Deadpool, yeah. Yeah. too close to Jurassic World is going to really hurt its legs. So this thing was chucked in the mix with all these films when it didn't have to be. Yes. They yeah. can control the release schedule because everyone's going to move away from Star Wars. We saw Deadpool leapfrog it yeah. to get away from mm-hmm. the back end of Solo. Right. Like if that didn't happen, we may be talking about a different box office story. Yeah. A little bit more money would have been would have made for sure. I mean, there's just so many factors to take in, right? Whether it's, I mean, Infinity War is still killing it. Uh, there was a lot of controversy going on with the directing, with the directors leaving yeah. for this film, and then the order that was released in. I mean, they own December, really, yeah. Star Wars, so they should. Yeah, they, they should have kept uh, a spot there. <laughs> well, it doesn't make sense because it's Marvel cannibalizing themselves. It's not like some other Disney. studio, or yeah, Disney cannibalizing themselves. It's not like it's some other studio just came in and said, 
planted their flag there and then you know mm-hmm. forced star wars to move it's you had infinity war and infinity war actually moved at the last minute a week early yeah imagine if infinity war came out when it originally did this thing would have made like even less yeah because infinity war even pulled 16 million dollars this weekend which wow. is pretty That's an amazing off weekend when you have deadpool and a solo or a star wars film in the theater at the same time right. yeah which is pretty incredible now the last point i want to talk about here is box office expectations was the bar set way too high for this film like Rogue One benefited the same way that Iron Man 3 did, coming off The Force Awakens, coming off Avengers. Iron Man 3 opened to like $174, $172 million, something to that effect. Crazy. That film had no business opening that big. Like, yeah, it was the last Iron Man film. Yes, Iron Man was a very popular character, but that was a solo standalone. Anything close to that was Iron Man 1, Iron Man 2. But this solo film falls much more into a early marvel solo outing captain america the first avenger did 65 million thor did about that ant-man did about 65 million doctor strange did 85 million so this is fitting much more in the scale of that so when we compare it to rogue one's box office are we comparing it to an overinflated box office because of the reception because of how well the force awakens it did it get a 85 90 million dollar bump because it came out a year after the force awakens people were stoked about that film we're back at star wars again we're coming off of kind of the high of the force awakens we've waited another year boom rogue one the first standalone comes out so is it fair to compare rogue one's box office to solo's box office I don't think so. Um, again, going back to a couple things, the marketing. The marketing yeah. was way better for mm-hmm. one. We got a big push. We got a Vader appearance. Vader will get asses and seats for yeah. sure when you yeah. see that. And like you mentioned, um, uh, Force Awakens, you know, that's a 10-year anticipation yeah. for that film. And then when that came out, is pretty is received pretty well. And then obviously when you when you hear about a film that's going to take place just before episode four, we're going back to that OG timeline, which is a big, big thing that people wanted. And we're getting the Death Star. There's just so many factors to work in that I think people just could not help and yeah. see what this movie is about. Even though a lot of people were confused of what that timeline was, they still want to see that film. Because they're riding that Star Wars high. That's that, exactly. that, that Avengers style of bump. Exactly. Yeah. Which is it's weird because in this case, it's the opposite. Like I mentioned, uh, unfortunately, uh, The Last Jedi wasn't received as well mm-hmm. as The Force Awakens. And then this film was missing the marketing that Rogue One had. You know, so it's uh, it's a little, it's a little different. Yeah, yeah. Huh. But if you remember, Rogue One also had director issues because Gareth yeah. Edwards. Not on this level, though. No, but, nowhere near this level. No, no, it's no. true. But it was still like, uh, I think like he got like replaced or like someone like came, came in, came in and, to like, yeah, for the last, yeah, for, for the last little bit there. Yeah. But the tension was nowhere near as big. Especially, we also got to remember too that episode nine was having the Collins Vero follow as well. Yeah. So there's this train of like directors leaving, yeah. you know, we also had Josh Trank leaving. There's just this huge thing going on. I feel like the, uh, Gareth Edwards was kind of on the low, but it was there, but it's pretty, yeah. pretty low. Which, uh, movie was Trank supposed to direct? Uh, uh Boba Fett. Boba Fett. Boba yeah. Fett film. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I think when you look at this and try to factor in a, a lot of these things that we've talked about, and I don't think there's going to ever be a definitive answer, and we're certainly not going to figure that out here. But I think an $80 million haul, yeah, it is disappointing relative to the rest of the Star Wars franchise. But when you lower that expectation and try to equate it a bit more to the solo early releases in Marvel, it's fairly comparable. $80 million. 
Like it's on the level of, a, like I said, a Strange, an Ant-Man, something like that. Yes, this has a Star Wars tag, but those also had Marvel tags on them. Yeah, but and, the budget too, though. The well, Doctor Strange budget was yeah, probably... Yeah. <laughs> Notwithstanding the budget and all that. Yeah, that's a complete... It's also because they reshot the whole movie. <laughs> that's true. That's so true, they yeah. doubled the budget more or less. But I think that can factor into it. Like Rogue One bump from The Force Awakens. Definitely. Yeah. And this just being maybe the new normal for these standalone films. That's true. That yeah. that might just be what it is. Like, can we expect the next solo film if it's FET to open up to 100? Even if it has rave reviews, I think we're going to see it at the lower end here. This isn't an event film the same way a saga film, same way an Avengers or a Civil War are. Like, the expectations need to be pulled down. For, for sure. I think in the future, depending on the on the character, at least. I mean, if it's an Obi-Wan film, I think that's something to be expected a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit higher. That would essentially that could be like your iron man right yeah. you know because he's, he's he's a big deal but i think the other thing disney needs to look at and we'll get into with this film is that when they're going to do these anthology films they need to be a one and done you can't kind of dangle a sequel because then you're walking to some scary territories like mm-hmm. what we're going to see with this film yes obviously. right right yeah. yeah loose threads or threads that may never get picked up exactly <laughs> do you yeah. think like star wars as a brand and as a franchise is strong enough to be like marvel um, where you can have your Avengers event films, but then you have your solo films. Like, do you think um, Disney and Lucasfilm, you know, they're going ahead, they'll probably go ahead with uh, Boba Fett is the next solo one. Um, if, you know, if they do make it and it doesn't kill it at the box office, do you think they just stop making these solo films and focus on the anthology films? See, that's the thing. And this is how what we discussed a couple of weeks ago with the idea of a Star Wars cinematic universe. I'm still not convinced that the way they're telling the stories is the right way to construct a universe. We've seen how Marvel does it, the blueprint and all that. The way they're bouncing all over the timeline here, you're starting to maybe see that this isn't something that you can do when you're trying to do this sequential storytelling, this overall universe is bigger narrative. Like there's teasing things that we will get into that I think maybe can bleed into TV shows. It can bleed into maybe Ben Benioff and Weiss series of films that could be really cool. But you may end up having to choose, and this is what we said last time, your silos, your Mm -hmm. sagas, your whatever this is going to be, your Old Republic, if they do that, the Johnson, you're going to be all over the place. So we've been trained by Marvel how to watch a film series or a larger narrative in a universe, and this isn't that. So they have to be really careful on how they construct this and how they move forward with it, because a lot of people are saying, we want the Marvel style of viewing, and Star Wars, as big as it is, it's going to be really difficult to do that if they're bouncing around in different eras. Yeah. So anyways, guys, I think it's time we actually get into the <laughs> film here. Now we're going to put the spoiler tag on this. We're going full deep cut spoilers with this. So if you haven't seen the film, pause it and come back for our review of Solo, A Star Wars Story. So, all right, guys, full spoiler territory. Let's get into this thing. Let's let's kick it off the discussion of the start of the film, the crawl or the pseudo crawl. Yeah. Or the Blade Runner twenty four to nine crawl, <laughs> Terminator, whatever you want yeah. to call. It. What are you guys' thoughts of kind of this this weird, maybe not weird, but different take on the Star Wars crawl? It, it was okay. It was cool. It, it was very Blade Runner, like you mentioned, a hundred percent. I still wish we had a proper Star Wars crawl. I, I think that whole rule. I don't know if it's Bob Egger or Kathleen Kennedy that decide for some reason the anthology films, a Star Wars story, will not have the crawls. Everything else has it. The comic books, the video games, the novel. They, they all have these these crawls. Iconic. So, I yeah, I think they're iconics. I think this film could have used it. Well, it didn't really need one. I mean, even the little 
Blade Runner thing we got, I still would have got the film without having that little yeah. backstory. So, um, other than that, though, it was okay. I just, I just prefer the crawl. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. You know, um, they kind of make them like episodes, like episodic yeah. uh, series. And so, like, you know, you jump in and then you're just like, okay, I'm caught up to speed and now I can watch the movie. This one, I was like, okay, um, it, they should have done, like, the traditional crawl, like, the way it looked. And even if they just put most of what they said and what they said and they actually said, then it would have been fine and just add a couple more things. But you need that crawl. I mean, and you need the music to, like, you know, it's there isn't that. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, sorry, I, I, I got to rewind, actually. I said they didn't need the crawl. I didn't need the crawl. I really do need the backstory in this film because I did realize... I was kind of out of place with the timeline, at least, at least where it initially started. I feel like if we got something like the Empire is two years old or three years right. old at yes. this point, yeah. that would have really helped. Yeah, because yeah. I don't know where to place this on my steelbook collection. I'm confused, guys. You guys are going to have to help me out on this one. <laughs> after so, so something like <laughs> five years or ten years after Empire Day. Yeah. Something like that, right? Or the Empire has been in power for X amount of years. Because the way it reads here is it is a lot of this time, crime syndicates compete for resources, food, medicine, and hyperfuel. So this coaxial thing. On the shipbuilding planet of Corellia, the foul lady Proxima forces runaways into life of crime in exchange for shelter and protection. On these mean streets, a young man fights for survival, but yearns to fly among the stars. Now, to me, when I read that, I don't, you get the gist of it, but I think you get most of that just from the context. Like, you don't need the exposition for it. But mm -hmm. if you're trying to, or if maybe they're trying to be a little bit more ambiguous as to where this lies in the timeline. But to me, yeah, you could have just said, you know, the empire has been around for X amount of years or celebrating something. This is yeah. empire day. And they could have just gone with that. Yes. In lieu of a traditional crawl. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it was kind of cool. It was kind of a weird in between rogue one and the force awakens or kind of the traditional crawl where you just had the text. Yeah. Cause I saw it a long time ago. And I was like, whoa, they're going for it. Yep. And they kind of halfway went there. So I'm I'm okay with it. It, it. It's fine. Would you be cool if this was a set benchmark now for these anthology films? Or was that kind of like, okay, it works for Solo. Let's go somewhere else. Or let's just cut it clean like the like the Rogue One. You know, I'm in favor of a crawl. Yeah. But this kind of clean cut, I kind of like that in Rogue One. Yep. I got the gist of it. I don't know if other people needed that. Like, did you need that blurb, Sanjay? at the start of the film to understand what's going on or do you get it? Because I think for me as a fan, I would have preferred, like you were mentioning, Troy, just placing us in the timeline because we get to three years later eventually and that's kind of exposition. Mm -hmm. So why not just use exposition to do this and just kind of jump straight into the film? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I would have preferred it because then I would have known exactly and then I would know where to put it on my shelf. <laughs> yeah. so. This is biggest concern. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we open with a younger Han and a younger Kira. They are the, kind of these street rat kids working for Lady Proxima, which is kind of an unfortunate name given Proxima Midnight right. and Infinity War. Confused <laughs> me a little bit. So overall, they seem to be running jobs. They're stealing things, giving it to this for the shelter, for the food and all that. And we really kind of jump into this film with this opening chase sequence. We saw most of this in the trailer, mm -hmm. kind of this, this Ron Howard American graffiti style of road racing, dragster racing. I thought this is really cool stuff. There's a lot of fun kind of whipping through. You're getting that, that Han Solo, that vibe of what this film is going to be. And he has some really great interactions with Kira once he gets into whatever the, the Lady Proxima's den is. So how do you feel about this kind of crashing us into Corellia, giving us the big ships above us, the whole idea of this kind of more of this dragster race? Like, what are your guys' thoughts on how this film opens outside of the crawl? 
yeah, I love this. I was engaged right off the bat. Like, they, they drew me in. I love, like you mentioned, we got the, the big ships to scale of like Gareth Edwards, what he did in Rogue One. But we got the hot pursuit Han going on, which we never really seen him, at least as far as I can remember him like driving. No, like, not like, like Land that. Cruiser, right? Like yeah. that. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. And this is a young Han, you know, doing some uh, some rebellious things. That was great. And I love the, the Rogue One grittiness behind it, too. And uh, and I love the aliens. We had subtitles that felt very Star Wars for me, at least mm-hmm. up until we got to Proxima, Lady Proxima. Up until we got to her, which I thought was weird that the aliens had the subtitles, but then she didn't. I thought they should have <laughs> kept that all, you know, just feeling more like Jabba's height in Return of the Jedi, or yeah, Return of the Jedi. Yes. You know? Yeah, I, I like the design. You said the grittiness. Like, yeah. it looked kind of like a Blade Runner film where you yes. have, like, you know, the darkness and it's, like, this, like, industrial complex kind of thing. I actually really like the design of, uh, what was it in Lady Proxima? Yeah. I, I liked it. It kind of reminded me of, like, a Jim Jim Henson movie or something like that. Very, like, uh, Dark Crystal or... Uh, a Real Life Monsters, Inc. Yeah, yeah. Or what's <laughs> the one with David Bowie? Uh, Labyrinth. Labyrinth, yeah. 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 Something like that. Um, I really dug it. Cause... Well, it's funny you say that because Ron Howard did Willow. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense because uh, Warwick Davis was yes. in this. So yes, there you go. He's in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that because Lady Proxima was probably one of my nitpicks okay. of this film. I was really pulled out in that scene. Part of it was, yeah, the color palette that they used for the chase sequence and kind of portraying Corellia was really cool. But when they got in the den, until he chucked the rock. I was like, I lifted my glasses off twice. I was like, they have not put a filter on here. Something is wrong with the screen. Right. I was so confused because it (laughs) almost looked like they shot it and just put a blue hue over it. Right, right. Right. So I was really confused. It's like, have you ever seen the movies, this is way back in the day, where they shoot a sequence in the daytime and they put a weird filter to make it look like night? I'm really thinking, um, what's the one with Keanu Reeves they do this in? Where he kind of, ah, jeez. No, where he's kind of the parachute and all that. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, point blank? Oh, point blank. Yeah, They do this in point blank. Yeah, so they're, they're yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah, exactly. They're, there's a scene in there where they're, this is really weird, but they're on surfboards surfing at night, but they shot in the day and put a weird hue over it. Oh, yeah. That's what I was getting off of this. And I was like, this is kind of weird. And the design <laughs> of Lady Proxima, uh, it was... I don't know. It was kind of a bit like the Borgullet for me. <laughs> yeah. it, wasn't, it was like, yeah, this is kind of a cool beast, but I didn't like how she talked, how she came out. But the one thing it really did well for me, gives opportunity to have Solo and Alden particularly really show who this character is going to be. Some really cool quips there. He's got the rock. He's clicking I it. I like that, yeah. Like a thermal yeah. detonator. That was really cool. I like seeing Alden give us that portrayal up front because from that moment on, other than one of those small parts, I only saw Han Solo. Yes. I never yeah. saw Harrison Ford or Alden. It was all Han Solo. And I yeah. that's that is probably the strongest part about his portrayal right from the get-go is I never thought of him anything other than the character. Yes, and that's why I think that's so important for me, at least because it set that tone. It felt like him in episode four talking to Jabba. It felt like him in Return of the Jedi, you know, a little bit there talking to Jabba. It just all that felt like a young Han Solo. And I think that scene was just uh, was pulled up pretty well. I, yeah, the design's a little hokey, a little weird <laughs> with, uh, with Proxima. But uh, all around it, it worked for me. I think it worked for the most of the audience, too, to really yeah. get yeah. involved with this movie and back it up there. Yeah, I really like that bit when he has, like, the rock and he's, like, clicking it. It kind of reminds... And he does it again in the film, something similar. 
kind of remind me of Get Smart, that old TV show. Yeah. Where he would say like, oh, I have like a thousand agents outside. And they'd be like, no. And he's like, would you believe 500? Like something like that. Like the great dialogue. I like yeah. it. That, that was funny. It's yeah. a, little, a little Star-Lord-ish. Yes. Just a little, oh, yeah. But not enough, right? Just, yeah. just enough. Little, yeah. It was enough solo that it wasn't Star-Lord. Exactly. Because they, they could have really fell into that trap. Yes. Where they were taking the portrayal of Star-Lord yes. and trying to mimic that a bit and not give you the Han Solo character that overly confident i'm gonna do anything i could probably get away with it yeah but we'll see yeah yeah that's the attitude i like and we kind of carry that right through into when they take off from lady proxima and the gang that they do have there and they run into this spaceport him and kira are trying to get off world they've got this coaxial thing this this refined hyper fuel now this becomes more or less one of the MacGuffins of the Mm -hmm. film, something that they're chasing, something they can focus on that isn't a kyber crystal. Yeah. So I like that they kind of went a different route. So something that the syndicates are chasing, this hyperfuel that's worth a ton of cash. Yes. Now we go from from Lady Proxima into this spaceport. We have some, again, some really great interaction with there. And the thing that I like about this early scene is, and this is, I think, important for the character development of both Han and Kira, is that I bought their relationship, their chemistry right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. That is important for later on in the film, for when they meet again, to see that Han is still pining. Han has a, a direction, a motivation to get back to Corellia. If you don't have that initial chemistry, it's hard to buy that that character that we know from A New Hope, someone that's very selfish, would actually go back yes. to save this woman. You needed that chemistry. I think you got it. What do you guys think of Han Kira right off the start here? Um, well, actually, going back about the hyperfuel, it's kind of interesting that this is like the second straight Star Wars film about fuel. <laughs> like The Last Jedi. I was like, when did Star Wars become Mad Max? <laughs> like they're looking for the guzzoline or something. <laughs> back to the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of their relationship, um, I think it worked for the most part. Some of the scenes felt like a little off for me when like Han was just like, uh, kissing, I can't remember her name. Kira. 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 Um, just like kind of seemed like out of the blue. I guess she's like, oh, like he's he's aggressive, man. Uh-uh. He's always been aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like it. I like right off the bat that they uh, have them, you know, just full out making out, going at it because it just goes right off the bat to show like they are committed. They're in a relationship already. We don't got to show you how they established the relationship. And to let you know, you know, obviously Han had a love before Leia, obviously. So yes. I like that because you didn't know at first, were they brother and sister? Were they cousins? Was it just no. a friend that he's been trying to get with? Right off the bat, we know that they're they're an item. So yeah. Well, they could still be brother and sister. I mean. It is Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Ambiguity, right? <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, I, I bought their relationship. And I think uh, Kira's uh, performance early in this part of the film, too, is... Uh, for me, works a lot better than it does towards the end of the film. Yeah. So I, I like the representation of Kira a lot. She, she seems like she's a bit stronger in the start of this film. Like she's less of the damsel or not really even the damsel in mm-hmm. distress because she's saying, you know, go, you know, come back or whatever. I can take care of myself. I can take care of myself. Yeah. Now she's found a way to take care of herself, but a lot of that is giving in to the syndicates and yes. that might just be a survival tactic. Yes. Yeah. But I do agree at the start here. Yeah, she's really great. And the thing that, one of the big things that happens here in the spaceport as well is that once Han gets through, they kind of bribe this this guard with the Quaxial, the, the troopers and the gang there, they end up taking Kira. He's on the other side. He works his way through and he joins up with the Imperial Navy or the Imperial Infantry, whatever it is. 
And he doesn't have a last name. Now, if you go back, I don't know if it was Bob Iger or whomever said this was going to be a story about Solo getting his name. We didn't know if that was going to be literal, like he was getting the Solo name, or that's more about the reputation he was going to get, kind of forming the lore around Han Solo that we obviously get throughout the original trilogy. But it's very much the literal take on it in that an Imperial officer gives solo his name the name of the film comes from kind of a random act of saying that he's from nowhere he has no one so he's kind of traveling by himself therefore he is solo did that land for you guys was that <laughs> what does that make sense did you want it to be more of a family name or are you cool with han solo just having the name because it literally means he's by himself <laughs> you know i i've talked to a lot of people about this and uh i'm surprised myself that i actually worked for me um, it didn't bother me too much. I just didn't think about it too hard, to be honest. Yeah. Because um, one, it's Star Wars. There's a lot of silly names as it is. And two, I was like, yeah, it just works. But if I was to tell you about this and you never saw the movie and I told you the whole dialogue about how this worked, you'd be like, that sounds stupid. But when you actually see it play out, at least for me, I was like, yeah, it works. I'd give it a pass. Yeah. How'd it work for you guys? Uh, for me, actually, it didn't really work for me because I was like, that seems so contrived. And like, it's a good thing he wasn't a fan of... Uh, like home alone because then his name could have been han alone or something like that because he's like all alone i was like come on man but but the really cool part i don't know if you guys caught this was the background music yeah the score on this yeah. oh no the imperial march, the imperial march. Yes. yeah i love that yeah yes yeah. 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 so imperial march is now part of the star wars canon well before that so yeah so the scene you're talking about is when we see like the ad of the imperials and then you hear yeah. the obviously yeah imperial so they're march. using it to like yeah, yeah. To, to, like as if it's a commercial which, yeah. is, which is really really cool oh it was embedded in the film yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah, that's so what you see oh, the I footage didn't, you I didn't hear catch the, that which oh, is awesome yeah yeah so like I think it's like a recruitment ad yeah I did not catch and, that and then so in the back of the ad they're playing the imperial march yeah. and I started cool. like yeah it's, so. but, it's, but it's not the first time actually in Rebels I think it's season two or season one but in rebels we actually see the same thing when they're in like a cantina you see the imperial so so it's kind of cool they paid attention to rebels and mm-hmm. they're like yeah let's run with that so it just makes the universes all feel more connected but i, I love that too i was right there yeah. with you that yeah. is good pull man i have to pick that up i did not catch that oh that's awesome that makes i love the scene even more so so for me from the solo thing i'm kind of on your side of it here sanjay yeah. is that it does feel slightly contrived like it seems convenient and it just seemed like he pulled Solo out of nowhere. There was no, <laughs> yeah. like, he didn't run through, like, we're going to call you, like, Han by yeah. yourself. Han, you Single. know. Yeah, no name. Or <laughs> yeah. like, I'm, I'm terrible about this, but it just <laughs> he just kind of was like, Han Solo. It's kind of <laughs> like when you call it a, a, a film name inside of a movie, and you're like, oh, there's the film name. Yeah. yeah. So it was fine. You know, it, yeah. like, I give it a pass. Again, like you said, Troy, didn't really think about it much. Does this have any consequence on the character my perception going forward or in reverse or whatever no so it's there it's part of the lore now i buy into it it's fine what do you guys think going back to names though because um getting off of solo but han i like how this film either calls him han or han oh they call it by lando by lando i I love that because when you go back to the originals he's always like han han he's like it's han you know it's like i love that that's the first time he corrects him too in this film yeah like no it's han so yeah so it's official it's han solo yeah i I love that (laughs) so moving on from this kind of cold open we'll call it where you get a bit of the introduction of two of the main characters bit of background of solo how he got his name the MacGuffin is kind of introduced here, the presence of the Empire and the presence of kind of these syndicates. So we get 
in a roundabout way a brief introduction to a good chunk of the overall characters and some of the narrative and what we're going to be chasing in here. So you got to get a perception as to how this movie is going to unfold and they leave you with a bunch of dangling threads that they pick up as they go through this film. So I think really well done in the first 10 minutes or so. But then we jump about three years into the future. We see Han who's been expelled from the Imperial Flight Academy for having his mind of his own as is referenced and he's kind of dropped into this Mimban battle. So Battle of Mimban. And he's in the mud, in the trenches. This battle here, guys, this is probably one of my favorite ground battles outside of Hoth. This is the first time we're getting this real, this visceral war where you're having back and forth, people retreating, explosions. This felt like World War One, World War Two cinematography in here. Mm-hmm. I love this opening scene with Solo kind of dumped into this big Mimban battle. This is really cool. I, I I love this scene a lot too. Like you mentioned, it's very like Private Ryan like, but with a touch of like a Star Wars flair. Yes. We get the introduction of uh, a Beckett here, and yeah. he's doing the gunslinging, and I thought that <laughs> this is so cool in my opinion because we've never really seen a gunslinger like that. Even no. Han himself has never been on that level, so it's kind of cool that he could pick up on these things. So I thought that worked uh, very well. There was one thing I wish we kind of got here, and I wish we got a little bit of explanation. I think this would have been a perfect time to do so. Is explaining the transitions from the clones. To the troopers mm-hmm. from the like humans now being the troopers as opposed to clones. I wish we kind of oh. got some kind of connection because when you go into the books like Lords of the Sith, you find out some of the clone troopers have become actually Imperial, Imperial Guards. Yeah. So I w- wish that would be kind of a cool time to explain some of that stuff. But mm. either than that, man, I'm with you. This is, yeah, probably one of the best ground battles we've had. Better than Rowan, I'll even say. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more so that we're not getting these clean white stormtroopers, this clean black death troopers. This is showing kind of. <laughs> the Empire having to grind. Yeah. And we've yeah. never seen that before. It's usually massive forces in done and dusted. Yeah, you get the rebels kind of doing their, their guerrilla thing. But for the most part, you're seeing clean battles on beaches, in snow. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like this. Yeah. And I think it really sets a scene for Solo to have that interaction with Beck and all that. I like the backdrop they use here. It's something that we haven't seen before. And to me, again, it really elevates the film. Yeah, I mean, this thing, I love dark and gritty, and this thing is dark and gritty. Like, this is like, is, did Zack Snyder direct this scene? Because it was amazing. That's probably, like, one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's just, like, you're in there, and you're just like, man, like, th- you feel kind of like you're actually there yeah. with them. Like, they do mm-hmm. a really good job making you feel like you're part of the infantry. Yeah, it's great. And we get the introduction of the mud troopers, yes. and the trooper guy, and we get the Mimban stormtroopers with all black dirt and the big capes and all that. Yes. Fantastic <clears throat> stuff. And like you said, Troy, introduction of Beckett and his crew here. We hear Rio for the first time. Yeah. We see Val and we see Han interacting with him. Now, this is the part of the film that I, if I'm going to say any of it's left. So we have about 30% of the film, say, that was left over from Lord Miller. This, parts of it at least, feel like the leftover stuff from Lord Miller. Because Solo in here feels a little different to me than he does at the start or at the end and middle of the film. Did you guys catch that same vibe? He seemed a bit more quippy, a bit more comedic, kind of when he's back and forth with Beck and all that. I want to attribute some of that to the Lord Miller leftover, but some of it is so good that I have to say <laughs> that Ron Howard had a hand in it, like particularly the stuff with, with Beckett and all that. 
Yeah. Like, did you get that same vibe that he felt a little different here? Or is that that innocence <clears throat> that he's trying to portray, that Alderman was trying to get across for Solo? Well, yeah, see, I kind of took it like a little bit of the innocence and kind of uh, starstruck by Beckett. I felt like yeah. he kind of looked at this guy, not too much as a father figure, but just someone to look up to. And he was very intrigued. Right off the bat, you could tell he kind of wanted to be something like this. He wanted in with these guys. That's kind of how I took it. But when you put it that way, if I was to say any scene would have been leftover material from Lord and Miller, it probably would have been this because his character is a little more jokey yeah. than what he was established at the beginning of the film. And I don't know if that's because three years have passed and yeah. whatever's happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually didn't pick up on this, but next time I watch it, I'll have to look out for it because I was like, eh, I don't know. It was the only part that stuck out to me a little bit. Right. The, the rest of it seemed like it was not so much dampened on the comedic end, but he was more about the subtle quips here and there you know, slight references, being a little bit more cocky. Mm -hmm. Because when you're walking around even Dryden Voss's yacht, it's, you know, keep your eyes down. I can't, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was a bit more about the interaction with characters, him and Chewbacca, him and Beckett. This was him kind of rolling with these quips. Right, yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know. I may be looking way too far into this, looking for that one piece. It still feels relatively seamless to me. Like, I'm not... I'm not picking this out because it feels like it's a different movie. I'm picking this out because Han Solo feels slightly different here. But I'm going to play that off to him being a bit more naive, him Mm -hmm. being a bit more innocent as to what's actually going on and kind of using that quip. So it's really used for Beckett and that crew and Han trying to get on this crew and trying to blackmail him about not being an actual captain. This is where we get him being introduced to Chewbacca. Yeah. Now, this is a big scene that we were waiting for coming as we knew it was coming. We know about this life that, that Chewbacca has. And it turns out that when Beckett and them call out Han for being deserter, they toss him in with the beast or the infantry toss him with the beast. Now, it's funny because as I'm going through this, I'm like, okay, wonder when Chewbacca is going to pop up. When they said the beast didn't click, it wasn't until I thought, oh, there's a Funko Pop of Solo and Chewbacca chained together, covered in mud. (laughs) That was my connection piece. So the idea of his meeting with Chewbacca didn't play out the same way I thought it was going to. And again, this is where I'm going to have a small little gripe about the film, is that I feel the scene is good, him fighting with Chewbacca, like he took some big bumps. I love when he starts speaking Shriwook to him. They start to interact. But... I was looking for a bit more of that altruistic moment where Han Solo either somewhat sacrifices himself or does a bit more for Chewbacca. This felt very self-motivated, him getting out of this tunnel, him convincing and to a degree tricking Chewbacca (laughs) into getting them out with the promise, oh, we'll get you off off world and all that. Like, did did you get that? Was, Was this moment what you wanted out of the meeting of Han and Chewbacca? Um, yeah, I, I like this. This is, this is probably the beginning of the film when I start nudging Sanjay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because as soon as they, 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 they talked about the beast, it's like, Sanjay, you, this is your scene, you know? Oh, she was yeah, showing up. the shirt, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I loved it. Again, this felt like um, Return of the, Ch- uh, Return of the Child, <laughs> Return of the Jedi, <laughs> when Luke fell down in Jabba's palace there. In the there, pit. Right, or even in the trash compactor. You know, oh, I, just, I, just, yeah. I got those vibes of Star Wars, and I loved, loved how we started talking the um tree look yeah to to, to chew mm-hmm. i just I, yeah I, I thought that was great and that fight was like pretty visceral between the two of them that that was really cool 
the only thing I took away after not the scene, but probably the film is that as I, I was like, they didn't establish the life debt. Exactly. That so, was my issue. Right. So I don't know if they were planning a sequel and we're going to go have them go back to like Kashyyyk or something. And then that's where it would be like, I don't know if that's what they're planning, but I was like, I wish it just answered that right there and then that, as that's, opposed to leaving that open. That's my know? gripe about it. It's not so yeah. much how they met. It's that we didn't get the big moment. Yes. Like yeah. him freeing a bunch of Wookiees from slavery and Chewbacca turning and being like, you know what? I owe you this. This is part of my culture type thing. For we sure. didn't quite get that. This was yeah. a bit more of, I'm going to use you a little bit. You use me a little bit. We're going to get out of here. Because even they go and run opposite directions when they get out. Yeah. yeah. So there's never any intention originally on really staying together. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing I took from the scene is like, so Chewie's been straight up like eating people for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the oh, Yeah. <laughs> Don't mess with Chewie. But also uh, the Frozen and Carbonite. The scene in here when he's in the mud and he's yes. got his hands yeah. out. Yeah. I was yeah. Like, oh, I've seen this before. Yeah. Nice call. Nice yeah, call, right. Sanjay. And then that shower the, scene, too. Just call me the Easter yes. Bunny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was a, that was an interesting scene. <laughs> I, I, it worked for me. I thought yeah. it's pretty funny. Yeah. I thought it was well, pretty funny. It really established that connection between the two of them. Like, I think they had some of the best banter back and forth. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, Chewie's almost realism and calling him out even on the Parsec thing. Yeah. And all that. Like, I like that banter. And that's how it's always been in the universe. Chewie's yeah. a bit more of the realistic one. And Han's kind of telling a bit of story. You know, you know, giving it a little bit of <laughs> you know, rubber around the edges. And Chewbacca's always been like the one, well, you know, Han. And like, even in The Force Awakens, we see the same thing. For sure. This is established right up front. For sure. This relationship between the two of them. And I really like that. The shower scene, it played well for me. It was kind of <laughs> weird, but I really did like it. I, I really, and, and I got to give uh, big props to the new actor playing yeah. Chewie. He came in on Force Awakens, but yeah, this was a full... Johannes uh, or Johan, I can't remember. Yeah, a basketball player that yeah, they, they recruited. Huge. But it's it's 100% him this time around, yeah. you know? And I think he did a great job great yeah, job cool. in this film. Yeah. yeah and this is since the original trilogy it's probably some of the most focused i guess we get quite a bit of them in the force awakens but he got a lot of focus in this film Big time. like they told a chewbacca story in this much larger han solo story which yeah. i can really appreciate so going forward here beckett and his crew realize that you know han solo and chewbacca there's something there so they recruit them to come and do this bigger job for them so they've been hired by Beckett's and his crew has been hired by dryden voss to get some of this coaxium some this main macguffin that we've talked about through this it's it's on the ship here after they steal one of the imperial ships and kind of fly off with it for this job we get a real interaction or a sit down moment kind of one of those few pauses in this breakneck film mm-hmm. where we get some dialogue into these characters now two of these characters we lose relatively quick but what are your kind of overall thoughts on beckett as a character you can bring in some of the other stuff from some context from later on in the film but what are your thoughts on woody harrelson and the beckett character he's great i mean it's very woody harrelson but i really feel like he really um you know gave us a, a great performance playing playing beckett i i do like how they talk about the crew where we're like why don't we just get bausch you know bosch yeah, Bosch. yeah i, I was like bosch. bosch bosch right yeah yeah bausch is the bausch is the bounty hunter that leia yeah. dresses as but I, yeah I, I love that callback <laughs> you know and that's why i really like in this film too is they do a lot of marvel kind of easter eggs because the audience is trained now to you know if you've been reading these books or watching mm-hmm. the shows you're gonna catch these things so um but back to to beckett yeah i thought i thought he was great i thought he was great here yeah he's such a terrific actor like he could do something like three billboards outside ebbing missouri and then he could come in to do star wars like how many actors have that kind of range and he he was on cheers like he's just always been around and he's always been such a terrific actor you know in this one the character worked for me um 
towards the end of the film, I guess we'll get to it. Not so much, but in this part, you know, I was digging it. Yeah. You know, he really grew on me in the film. This scene did a lot for me. I never trusted him. So I was always kind of reserved my opinion, reserved kind of getting attached to the character because from the first trailer, I said, this guy, or from even the announcement, I said, this guy's going to turn on Han. Yeah. Yeah. Like we knew it was coming. So he was a relatively predictable character, but some of the lessons that he imparts to Han are quite important for Han's character development later on in life. Even the Han shot first type thing, right? Yes. So there's a real importance to this character and it took me a little while, more so than the rest of the characters, to really buy into him because I just never fully trusted him. And that's that's almost on me, yeah. not so much the storytellers. But he is probably the most predictable character in the film, I would say, as far as overall arc about the crossing and double crossing and all this. Like, we kind of knew that was coming. <laughs> so, well, he even says, don't trust anyone. Yeah. Well, yeah, he calls it, a, he foreshadows it himself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Several times. I, I like what he does because obviously we, he is predictable and we do know he's probably going to betray Han. But that campfire scene, I really do get a sense of like, he likes Han. He, yes. he really does, but he's just mm-hmm. doing what he has to do to well, survive. But it's never been like in this malicious way where he's like, I'm just using a kid. Like if he didn't have to go that route, which we'll get into, he would have probably still been with Han. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? It's kind of a reflection of where we see Han go eventually, right? Yeah. Yeah, kind of selfish out for, for himself. He's going to do what he has to do, but he's not going to do it, like you said, in a malicious way. Yeah. He's not going to go out of his way to kill somebody to get something or get a job done. But he also recognizes this is the lifestyle that he's chosen yeah. and this lifestyle that he wants to live. So he has to do certain things that are maybe outside of the morality of a normal person. And Han seems very willing to accept that role as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of like that relationship. You kind of see how they were calling him his mentor. Yes. Like I took it much more as this was a lifelong mentor when they first announced his character. Right. But this is someone that teaches him a lot in a very short amount of time. Yes. So this is a very necessary character in the film, the absence of that character, you lose a lot of Han's character development by proxy or by being near and around Beckett. For sure. Um, now, what about Rio and Val? These are characters I didn't expect to die as quickly as they did. I really, really <laughs> liked Rio and John Favreau's voice in there. Yeah. Oh, he's he ha- great. Yeah, he had a real, I, want, I don't want to say rocket raccoon, yeah. but he had something about him that felt that made me really want more of this character. Now, could you have had him and L3 at the same time? That may have been a bit much for the film, but for this first part, he brings quite a bit of levity and he does a lot of exposition. He kind of calls out Han for, you know, why are you doing this? And then Val says it's for a girl. So they have a lot of great interaction around this campfire scene. And even Val, I really like the character. I'm never really invested in her because she's not around long enough. Yeah. And I never fully bought the Val and Beckett relationship. They didn't do enough to make me buy into that, to make me feel like her sacrifice was fully earned. Right. Yeah. It, it's a necessary part of the storytelling with Beckett in particular. You have to make this guy have nothing to lose. Is this the right direction for it? Maybe, maybe not. Did it bother me? No. No. Like, it's, it's not a big enough plot point in the film that I'm like, yes, this needs to be changed. <laughs> I maybe would have liked to see more of Val because she yeah. seemed like mm-hmm. a pretty cool character. How they dispatch her? Sure. It, yeah. it kind of fits... It drives the story. It drives it towards an end where they need to go to the next step to get the, the unrefined Quaxium. It's yeah. a necessary step in the overall narrative. Yeah. What are you guys' thoughts on Rio and Val? Yeah, I thought they were like pretty good characters. Uh, I really like John Favreau's character, Rio. Uh, I thought he was pretty funny. Um, Val wasn't in it too long. You know, she was just kind of there. Uh, unfortunately, she bites the dust pretty early and doesn't have anything else to do there. So I would have liked to see her stay on a little bit longer, but. Uh, yeah, they're just, they're fine. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I liked uh, it was John Favreau. John Favreau's character is real. Real, yeah. Real. Yeah. I liked him. I feel like he's the alien we've been missing for quite some time in the Star Wars films. I feel like he should have been somebody in, in like Rogue One, you know, yeah. because we always get the droids, but we don't get enough of the alien yeah. that tag along. So I, I really liked him, and I he kind of believed in Han, you know, to to take it to that next step, especially when it came to the Paladine. Yeah. So I liked him. I think I think Valve was okay. Nothing crazy, but like you mentioned, she's just someone to drive the story along. So she yeah. served her purpose in that sense, but she's not a character you're gonna really be uh, rooting for. But I'm sure we'll see her appear in that um, Beckett comic because we know Beckett's getting like a much like DJ. He's getting like a one shot. Oh, comic. is he? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm sure she'll be in there if, for any Valve fans. But hmm. um, yeah, I think they bit the dust when they needed to because it kind of worked. Actually, it kind of yeah. set that tone right off the bat that people are going to die in this film. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now, she bites the dust in Rio as well in this much larger next action set piece. Now, this is one of my favorite action set pieces of the whole film, oh, yeah. this train ride. This is really cool. We get an introduction of the range troopers. There's a lot of dynamic action going on here with Han and Chewie. you got Beckett. You've got these big cables. Rio and the ship. There's a ton going on here. This is a great, great scene. And then you get the introduction of Emphy's Nest and the Cloud Riders. So a lot going on here, but very, very well done action piece. Like this is probably the one of the best ones in the film, I would say, if not the best as far as overall action. Yeah. You guys align with that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I'll put it up there. It's probably one of the best action sequences in Star Wars. It's, wow. This was, yeah, this, this train sequence was incredible. Incredible, and the music, the score to go along with it was so cool. It was never confusing. It wasn't a very like shaky cam. Like you knew exactly what everybody was doing at yeah. the same time. The the way that Chewie and Harm were working together, and then Val was doing her thing, and Beck is doing. I thought it was just great. It was so cool. This this train sequence, and again, the score was cool. I like the introduction to uh, what, what's those pirates called again? Empty's Nest. Empty, uh, the Cloud Riders. Yeah, the yeah. Cloud Riders. I thought they were. They were cool at this point for me. At yeah. this point, I thought they were really cool. But yeah. all around, I love this scene. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I really like the design of the train, how it kind of ran on that track yeah. and kind of like flipped. And I liked it was on a mountain. Like the yeah. setting was cool. Like you could have set up like a movie just like on that train, like Murder on the Emphy's Nest Express or something. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah, it was a, it was a ton of fun. And the thing I like at the end here, they're battling with Emphy's Nest and Han drops the cargo. So very much a foreshadow to him dropping Jabba's cargo later on. The first time you see the Imperials, Becky calls him out for being a coward. So it's it's a really, really great scene. And like I said, quite dynamic. You get a few deaths in here. An envious nest. You know what? I'd say initial thoughts on them. I just thought there was some sort of side antagonist. I didn't think they're going to factor that much into the film. But personally, later on, the reveal makes them, for me at least, a much bigger part of this film and a much more important part of the film. Yeah. I didn't really pay much attention to them, to be honest with you. Yeah. They're just pirates. They're just there to be kind of antagonists, to make it so it's just not something easy. It diverts you a bit away from the Empire being, again, the main antagonist. So they served a purpose, but in hindsight, from what we get from the end of the film, I like them a lot more. Mm. Okay, because I'm like the opposite. Like, oh, yeah? Because like, okay, so at the I guess we'll talk about it now. Yeah, we can talk about it now. Um, so at the end of the film, they reveal themselves and they like, they're actually the good guys. Yeah. You know, they're the resistance, like the first resistance. Yeah, rebels. Rebels, yeah. And so they talk to them and then they're like, oh, that makes sense. We'll give you this. But like, why wouldn't they just go and talk to that crew before that whole train thing? Right. They could have, you know, they could have saved like Val and uh, Rio's lives. Like it kind of felt like 
a kind of like a weird plot point where you know they're like they're, they're good people but then they're like portrayed so bad and, and they like kill two people but yeah. they're trying to be like the good guys yeah you echo my thoughts 100 percent. that's yeah. i'm on the same page i i thought the look of these characters would look so oh, cool especially going yeah. into the trailers i was like these guys are awesome and, and and like star wars is full of pirates we never had them on the big screen though so i'm like cool it's an opportunity just to have your pirates they don't have to do anything more than that and then yeah. we get this whole reveal and it's almost like as if the audience is meant to know who they are when they unmask themselves and i was like it looked like one of them was two tubes yeah i think it was it, it was two. so that was that's my impression cool. of it yeah yeah but either than that i was like I didn't really care. I feel like in Star Wars, we've always had so many different origins of like the Rebel Alliance, like from whether it's Ryloth or I'm um, obviously the Rebels TV show, or then obviously there's Leia's gang and then there's Bob Mothra's gang. So I was like, when we saw them, I'm like, of all the other Rebel Alliances that we've seen already that are established, we're getting just nobodies. So that was kind of weird for me. And like you mentioned, like a lot of deaths would have been saved yeah. if they just were like, Han, stop. Like, yeah. I can stop. This is what we want to do. But my, but my impression from that is that they just assume they're working for Crimson Dawn, which they were. Right. So they were stealing coaxium for the, the syndicate, and mm-hmm. that's what they were trying to prevent. So for me, like, I like the idea of pirates and all that. Yeah. But if, I, I liked the reveal of the rebellion because the way I took it, this is even, this precedes Mon Mothma and all that. Yeah. So I, this would be before them. That That's my impression right. of it because, like, and we'll have to talk about this when we talk about the big character reveal. Yeah. But my impression is that this is like, more than you know the ghost crew more than Hera and like early stages ryloth because they're explaining about the syndicates and the empire and all that i just thought it was a really cool way to see the rebellion or the idea of the rebellion han's interact early interaction with them right without outright saying this is mon mothma this is leia this is whatever right right you don't have to have jimmy schmidt show up and say <laughs> you know i'm here we're part of the rebellion do you want to be part of this han yeah no i'm good for now type thing like i i, I really liked that Emphy's Nest was something bigger. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of a bit opposite to you guys. Yeah. I think the reveal made them better for me because I liked how it tied into the bigger universe. But I can appreciate kind of your your reception of it not yeah. being as warm because, yeah, it would have been cool just to be pirates yeah. Yeah. at the end of the day. So I think to me, I'm looking for the bigger ties. And maybe right. that's why that hit a bit harder for me. Because when she took her helmet off, I agree. I'm like... Am I supposed to know who you are? <laughs> yeah. Because I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but the cameras lingered quite a while. Yeah. I thought like, maybe she was like the daughter of uh, Val and Beckett or something. Right. That Okay. That, my yeah. head went there too. Yeah. I was yeah. like, because he was looking at her funny and I was like, oh my God, is this their daughter? Yeah. I, I thought the exact yeah. same thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. But again, maybe they're planting the seeds for like another film. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. A comic series or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So. Something that may never come. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so overall, they lose this, this big Quaxium kind of haul that they're kind of trying to steal from the Empire. And then Beckett fully reveals here that this shipment was actually for Dryden Voss. He's a high ranking boss in the crime syndicate Crimson Dawn. And Han and Chewbacca then volunteer after the death of Rio and Val to go with them to steal another shipment. So they're going to try to preserve Beckett's life, more or less, because Dryden Voss is known for killing those who fail, which seems to be relatively common in the Star Wars universe. (laughs) Failure equals death. (laughs) So they travel to this yacht that he has, this really cool-looking yacht, this vertical thing, really visually stunning. I love this, again, with the scale. And it's on here that we get our cantina scene. Yes. That seems to be relatively consistent. This one I liked a lot better than Canto Bite. Yeah. There's a lot of cool elements in here. It wasn't played up as kind of this goofy part. Like, it, it seemed to be that seedy underbelly that we do see in the original cantina scene mm-hmm. in A New Hope. 
really enjoy this. We get some new characters. We get some old familiar characters and Twi'leks and that. So it seemed to be something that, yeah, I can buy into that this is something that Dryden Voss, this crime boss, this is where he'd be living. This is kind of the crew that would be on board. So I really liked it. Another thing it did, it gave Han and Chewie a lot of time to kind of be funny. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. The, their interaction back and forth was really great. But the head up, head down, I don't know what I'm doing. Chewbacca <laughs> takes off and then Han takes off. And then he meets Kira. So the going back and reintroducing these two characters. So with all that, guys. What are your thoughts on the yacht and the introduction or the reintroduction of Kira, Han, and some of the interaction that we see with Beckett and all that on this yacht? The opportunity for them to kind of go and do a bit more talking, a bit more exposition. Yeah, like I actually thought this was like much better than Kanto Bite. Um, I, I thought it was a pretty good scene. Um, then when Kira comes back and her and Han are talking, and she kind of was foreshadowing about how you know she has. To, too much red in the ledger to borrow a phrase from Marvel. Yeah. You know, so that, she's kind of like foreshadowing like, okay, so she's probably done some bad stuff in order to survive. You know, what, what is that stuff? What is that like, you know, matter to Han? Like what's going to happen with that? So that part, like, they kind of like seeded it. I think like they actually did a pretty good job with that. Um, and, I, and that scene worked for me. Yeah, I, I love this. Yeah, way, way better than Castle Bite. <laughs> I, I love the look of this place. And they spent just enough time there. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, that lady singing in the background, she had like that voice box built onto cool. her face. I thought that was like, genius how they, they came up with that. The design of all these different characters. And then, yeah, I thought it's cool that Han's been looking for Kira and he wants to go back you know, to get her, and then here she is right in front of him. I, I yeah. just thought that was so cool how that set up in this huge galaxy that she found yeah. him, basically, yeah. there. So uh, that worked for me, and uh, yeah, all, all around, I love this. I love the design of the ship, too, on the outside. It's yeah. just really cool. fantastic mm -hmm. looking. Yeah, Really cool. And now, it's here where I think we get some of the best Alden Einreich as Han Solo. When he's sitting and he's negotiating with Beckett and with Dryden Voss about going to get the unrefined and then we're going to take it over here and we're going to get it refined and we're going to do this all. Don't worry, I got it covered. That is Han Solo to me. Yes. Like yeah. very, very much that I've got a plan. It's not really a plan, but it's fine. I'll take care of it on the way. Yeah. That screams Han Solo to me. And you get that quite a few times in the film, but this here to me is one of my favorite interactions that we get. And he's just glowing this character. Like, I can't believe how well he's done here. Like, he portrays Han not as well. He's ne You're never going to match up to Harrison Ford, but as a young Han Solo, I get a lot from this scene, and I get a lot from this actor. Oh, yeah. I I'm right there with you. I had a huge smile on my face to see this guy perform as a young Han Solo, and it just makes sense that he's not going to be the Han Solo that we all know, the Harrison Ford, but he's in the makings of that, yes. and it just works so well on screen how they captured it. You mentioned him doing the whole bargaining chip with... Um, with Beckett and Voss. And it's so cool because we're seeing him learning yeah. these things, these steps. We yeah. see him do it over and over again, you know, and the confidence in himself yeah. to do so. Over committing on everything. Yeah. 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 It's oh, brilliant. Love it. Yeah. 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 Totally agree. So now Dryden Voss, this is the character, the big bad of the film or one of the big bads of the film. There's always another big bad, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> do you buy him as a credible villain? Like he, he's pretty cool. He's someone that was brought in last minute in Paul Bettany. This is originally supposed to be Michael K. Williams, the character. He couldn't come back for the reshoots, so they had to recast and restructure this character. Interesting. Now, the look is pretty cool. Was it me, or did the, the scars light up when he got mad? I like, thought so, yeah. Because so you saw that too? They did. They, they went on to say he's actually, like, he looks human, but he's actually an alien of some sort. Because oh. when he dies, he yeah. kind of, like, crumbles into something weird. 
Oh, I didn't catch that part. Like he, he okay, does not just that, Paul yeah. Bettany laying there anymore. Yeah, it's it's something like it kind of looks like uh, you know when the shapeshifter dies in Attack of the Clones and she kind of like oh, molds yeah. up. It looks kind of like that. <laughs> okay, yeah, because it did say he's alien because his eyes also light up and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So yeah. did you buy this guy as kind of the credible villain for this film? You know, it's interesting you say that. You're like, who is like the main villain of this film? Like, it's almost at times it doesn't seem like there is a villain. Like this guy's in it for a bit and then he's out for long stretches. It's like. Is there an actual, like, big baddie in this film? I guess this would be the big baddie, if you will. Uh, he worked, but I would have liked to see more. He was kind of, like, in it, and then he was out for, like, as I said, long stretches, and then they do another side adventure, and then he's in it again. Like, he probably only has five, six minutes of screen time. Yeah. But it, it worked for me when he was on screen. Yeah, he's not so much the villain in the sense that Thanos is a villain or mm-hmm. Hela as a villain. He's more yeah. of kind of... The one that's driving them to do things like yes. it's that threat of Dryden Voss that makes them go out and have these adventures go on these you know what I mean so yeah. they need that character to drive the narrative of the whole plot forward but yeah he's not someone that you do see a fight at the end but it's not like they're you know punchy punchy throughout the whole film here yeah, yeah. no I, I liked him he wasn't the best but I, I really thought Paul Bettany put on a good show from what, yeah. when we saw him yeah. I like the tone that he set like when he wanted to like kill someone he's gonna do it and, and he sets that tone right away so yeah. you, you get that sense of, um, of Beckett and everyone kind of trembling when like man I don't want to mess this yeah. up because this guy yeah. will kill me he won't hesitate so I do like that I like how he's a collector too because you yeah. notice the little trinkets I think there's a, a Sith holocron in there as yeah. well oh, there's cool. little the things like that armor. the Mandalorian armor obviously yeah and then the weapons that he used were okay Yeah, they were okay um, rebels very yeah. rebels yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but I liked them nothing nothing yeah. to brag about but I, I do like what Paul De- Bettany did with yeah. this character all he had to do was be believable enough that you're two main protagonists and at this point Beckett and Han and even Kira would fear this guy enough that they would go out and do this not yes. just kind of piss off and just be like okay I don't this guy's fine so yeah don't worry about him we're cool to live with a bounty on our head because this guy ain't gonna do nothing yeah. so he had to be that at least yes. and I, I think they did accomplish that with Paul Bettany and I think the look of the character is really cool yeah it would have been interesting to see what Michael K. Williams did yeah but at the end of the day I'm cool with Paul Bettany here you know vision you know all in the family. Yes. yes. <laughs> Poor Michael K. I mean, he's been kicked out of Star Wars. He's been kicked out of uh, Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I think we'll see him at some point again. He's a good actor, and he seemed to have a good relationship with Lucasfilm, so yeah. hopefully he gets a role later on. Omar. Down the road. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big time. The Wire. Big time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's in the scene, too, that we get the reveal that Kira is actually Dryden Voss's lieutenant, his main lieutenant. So she's been working for him. We see the tattoo on her wrist. So there's a bigger and broader backstory to kira that we don't get much of we get a tease of it later on but we don't know much about kira going forward other than the fact that she's assigned to han chewbacca and beckett to go on this big plan that han's kind of laid out in front of them and she's going to say like if you're not if she's there you got to do this if not i'll kill you all (laughs) (laughs) he is very serious and what she does she provides the link between han solo chewbacca and beckett to Donald Glover's Lando. So she introduces them to the character, to the human that is going to provide them with the ship that's going to get them over to Kessel to steal this unrefined Quaxium. Now, guys, we we called this out from the start when we said we're excited about Donald Glover's portrayal. He's likely going to steal the show. Did it land for you guys? 
is that pun intended? Land Lando? Yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> man, it, it, he was awesome. He was so good. They, they, they couldn't put him in this film enough or else it would have it would have had been called Lando. Yeah. It was, yeah. He was so good. His dialogue, he, he sounded just like Billy D. It was crazy. Okay. That you, scene. You got to tell me, is that was that dubbed with Billy D. The fr- That's it's, what I'm wondering. You get it here and there. Like it kind of comes in and out a little bit. His his speech or his almost impression of Billy D. Williams. The first few lines, it sounds exactly like yeah. that. Like there is very, very little difference in those two characters. It was crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if they sound mixed. They, it wouldn't be the first time no. Star Wars has done these kind of things with McGregor and uh, Alec McGuinness, right? Yeah. So, oh. no, he, he was great. But my biggest thing, and this is probably where I'm, I'm nudging Sanjay again, is when he <laughs> drops the line about um, Aura Singh, yeah. that Beckett killed her, and he praises Beckett for this. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, you guys are throwing in Clone Wars tissues here. You know, mm-hmm. I just... Ah, I thought that was so cool, and I just I love the fact that Disney is going this route now that they're giving us these Easter eggs. But again, back to Lando, his his presence, his swagger was great. Everyone's hyping him up. Kira's talking about this guy, how he's handsome, and he's yeah. done this, he's done that. I'm just like, this is so cool because we're meeting Lando at a young age, and he's already established. He's already yeah. done mm-hmm. all these crazy things at that age. It's wicked. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I mean. Uh... Just such a great actor, and the portrayal of Lando. Lando is just—he's always the coolest guy on screen. Yeah, and this continues with this movie. He yeah. was great. He oozes charisma in this. Yeah, mm-hmm. like it, it's all over the screen. And now you can't talk about Lando without talking about L three. Yeah. So the revolutionary droid, his partner in crime, maybe his lover. Yeah, yeah. maybe, maybe, you maybe, never maybe know. not. You never know. It you does never know. work. We did find that out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on L three? Kind of the droid, the sassy droid in this film. Your K two, if you want to call it that, from Rogue One. Are you getting tired of the sassy droid, or did you like the portrayal here of Phoebe Waller Bridge? Um, to be honest with you, I don't really have a strong opinion on this character. It was just. Again, she was just kind of there. Um, she bites the dust in a little bit, and she's there. She makes some noise. She wants droid rights. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a bit of tongue-in-cheek on maybe the current political climate. Maybe, yeah. The social yeah. climate in I, I, the yeah. States. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, maybe a little. That that would be uh, pretty on pretty on the nose on that one. <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think you know, she's fine. She Admiral, she's the new Millennium Falcon. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, see, I feel the importance of her is so cool because, yeah, she's part of the Millennium Falcon, which is great. I felt like if I got more of her earlier, because obviously the way the story goes, it just wouldn't make sense. But I feel like in doses, she worked for me. There's some points which I actually preferred her more than K2SO. Um, I like the design of her a mm-hmm. lot which is pretty cool. I feel like we're probably going to get the end of these droids now. We're not going to get these K2 and L3 like droids. They're probably going to calm it down a little bit. But uh, she, she really did work for me. I really do like the fact, though, that they downloaded her into the Millennium Falcon yeah. and that this makes sense why the Millennium Falcon can actually speak to them, right, in a sense. Yeah, so. and C-3PO calls it in, I think, where is it, Empire or Return, that this has a very peculiar language. Yeah, I think it's Return. I think yeah. it's Return. And that's why it makes so much sense that it's the ship is so important to Lando because we see that scene, how he breaks down. Like, he loves this mm-hmm. droid. And um, it just comes full circle when, you know, you get to realize that, yeah, there's a huge importance of the Millennium Falcon to Lando. So yeah. now Han's kind of a jerk for taking it from <laughs> him. <laughs> the love of his life. <laughs> no, I, I really liked L3. I thought we got the right amount of her. Yeah. I thought it was cool that she instigated this kind of robot revolution or droid robot, droid revolution uh, in Kessel. 
That yeah. was really cool. It was kind of a great plot point, great distraction. And she provided, again, a little bit of levity in the film. Like, it, it's pretty, it's not, I wouldn't say dark at all, but it's it's a different kind of comedic tone. And I can really appreciate that. Like, do I want to see more? Do I need a droid like this in every single film? No. Do I want someone like Rio, maybe, in the next film, like an alien, like you said, yes. Troy? Probably. So I liked how she eventually evolved into something that's a bit more meaningful in the sense that she's plugged into the Falcon. She becomes the ghost in the machine, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. And the relationship that's established between her and Lando is great. They have an awesome rapport. They There's some weird moments with the love stuff, but yeah. that's kind of cool. And I think that's impactful for Lando later on about how meaningful L3 is to him and how real her death is for him. Like him running across with her in his arms yeah. is yeah. quite a moment. Like yeah. this is like a child or a best friend. Like I, I took the whole idea of it less of, you know, hand, hand, Lando loving her, but more as like, this is my best friend. Be the same way if Chewbacca died yeah. on yeah. Solo. And like they had, they had that great rapport and I, I really liked what they did there yeah. with L3. Like it was, a, it was a lot of fun and it was just a brief period in the film. Like, it wasn't like she was there the whole time. It's not like a C-3PO and R2, right? right. Mm -hmm. It was something that was there, served a purpose, and it became a bigger part of the Star Wars lore. So yeah. for that, I absolutely love it. Definitely. You uh, mentioned C-3PO and R2-D2. They were in every Star Wars film up until this one. Is yeah. that correct? So this is the first time they don't appear? or I believe Anthony Daniels is in the film. Okay. As, yeah. I don't know if it's a droid or a Wookiee, but he is in the film. So, yeah, that's the first time we don't see either of those two, which makes sense. There's no way you can shoehorn them in. No. Here. No, no you really couldn't. Like, the only way you could have had them is if you found a weird way to get them on to Kessel to be part of the, the droid revolution or whatever, right? Oh, like And then being like, out. I don't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it seems kind of funny, but overall, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fine. Yeah. Um, now, let's talk about the Millennium Falcon. This becomes a, a big part of Star Wars lore of Han Solo's story. The look of it is very different here. Lando's mm -hmm. ship is something special. It's classy. It's been impounded. Yeah. But it's a classy <laughs> ship. What do you think of the look finally seeing it on the big screen outside of the trailers? Like, is it, did you find it cool? Did you like the cape room? What, what about it did you like? Didn't like? Yeah, I love the cape room. The cape room was cool. Uh, it served Han and uh, Kira pretty well yeah, there, too, did. for a moment. So <laughs> that was pretty neat. Um, I, I always get a kick out of seeing the... Um, the uh, the pit where they the like the weapon pit yeah it's just seeing that chair shake it's like as the years go by it just becomes more ridiculous from Finn and then yeah. Beckett being in there and you're like this thing kind of sucks you know <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah I, I liked it it's cool to see the transformation because we always thought that Han would kind of not so much care for it anymore but kind of do his own mods to the to the ship but then you actually see that well he just beat the beat the ship up pretty much and that's just the state of it when he gets it you know mm -hmm. so no I liked it. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to see because you said like when you see it later on in Star Wars, it's such like an old beat up ship, especially like in The Force Awakens. Yeah. Like now you feel bad for it that it just sat there for how many years and then you have the droid like that's actually living in it. Uh, <laughs> but it was nice to see like a brand new Millennium Falcon. It was uh, it was cool. And the ship, you know, looks beautiful with the room and the capes were awesome. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, definitely. I really like seeing kind of the initial stages of the Falcon, even when they're playing. I can't remember what it's called, that chessboard. Yeah. And Chewie tries oh, to swipe yeah. them away. Really cool because he had several callbacks to that. Yeah. Throughout the whole trilogy of films or whatever you want to call it, saga films. Yeah. So I really like that. I really like how they established as being, yeah, this is the character in Star Wars, and this is another big piece as to why we get it. And the look of it, I love the look of oh, it, yeah. but also like how they transformed it into the ship that we're more familiar with going forward in the yeah. Star Wars universe. Because, you know, we get this, this revolution, they eventually get the Coaxium, we get some weird-looking Wookiees, so, yeah. which kind of kind of harken back to a bit more Planet of the Apes style right. of, of yeah. Ape. Yeah. 
But overall, I thought the whole Kessel thing was pretty cool. I like visiting Kessel. It's kind of a planet embedded in Star Wars lore. But it's really the Kessel run yes. that we're looking for. This is another mm-hmm. big piece of Han Solo's lore. This was called out in the original trilogy in A New Hope about doing the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Always a point of confusion. Parsecs is a, a, a unit of distance or length. And it seemed to be referencing a unit of time. They really do solve this in here. (laughs) So the Kessel Run being kind of the route through what's called the Maelstrom, kind of this nebula, the only safe passage through it is via this one route that is 20 parsecs, I think Lano calls out. And it's Solo kind of diverting into the Maelstrom, going towards these black holes and doing it in less distance. So he's done the Kessel Run in what he calls less than or around 12 parsecs if you round down. Yeah. So I think it was really cool that we got on the screen for the first time the Kessel Run. Did it land for you guys? Did that lore, did that 40 plus years of thinking about what the Kessel Run is, did that work for you? I, I loved it. I thought this scene was so cool. And it's cool to like get an answer but not really get an answer, you know, um, because it's Ray that's like, whoa, so this ship did it in 14 yeah. You know, so it's kind of like the rumors gone out there that it wasn't actually 12, it was about 14, 15, but then, you know, Han obviously <laughs> rounds down. Rounds down because yeah. Chewie interrupts him, being like, you know, he probably said it's 14 himself. So I thought <laughs> that was pretty cool. And just the way they boosted it up and to, to escape it, it's a really good sequence, actually. Yeah, it's too. beautifully it's, well it's, shot. It's, oh, oh, yeah. It's, it's like when you get the Star Destroyer coming down the oh, road, yeah. and that's why they peel off into the mouse. Like, that's that's really well done. You get the construction of the Falcon by them jettisoning the escape pod. Yeah. The front mandible's gone. You get the whole paint job getting scraped off. Yeah. And kind of getting sucked into the It the TIE fighters or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And we get this real, like, kind of callback to the original trilogy with the Falcon not working properly. You get the sound effects. Yeah. Really, really well done scene. And then it fires off. And you've kind of got very, very reminiscent of the original trilogy. Him snaking through yeah. kind of a callback to the thing he did on Corelli with the yep. car kind of foreshadowing what he's done in the past in Empire. So that was really cool. Did you catch the score when they were rocketing through here, through all the kind of these big carbon balls or whatever they are? It was the same score as when they're in the asteroid belt in Empire. Oh, oh. was it mixed in a little bit? Mixed in. Yeah, bit, yeah. yeah. See, oh, okay. yeah, that was, that, that I was didn't cool. Catch that. That was yeah. cool. And that's why I love about this movie is I feel like they hit so many notes on Star Wars, especially for the new generation, because as a kid watching this, that's going to be your moment is, mm-hmm. is the Kessel Run or or the train sequence. You're, you're, they're going to grow up 10, 15 years from now. They're going to remember this is their yeah. scene, much like what Return of the Jedi did for us and, and whatnot. And they, they give us so many key moments. And the Kessel Run is big time one of those. Yeah. yeah. And I think the score plays a big factor into the film as well. Like, yeah. they do original things. Empty Ness has kind of got this weird kind of aboriginal. Like, it kind of yeah. was different. In Tribal there. a little. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And... They mixed in a lot of the original trilogy themes into something a bit bigger. So the cues that we're thinking about, like I'm thinking very much Empire asteroid chase in here, and you're getting that. Yes. And like you said, the the call to the Imperial March, like this is very well done and very well integrated. The score is always such a huge part of a Star Wars film, and this one for me really, really lands. Like I absolutely love the score. Oh, Who, who did this one again? I can't remember. John Williams had a piece of it or yeah. had a hand in it, and I can't remember the guy's name. I'll say maybe John Powell or something like yeah, that. Cause, cause, yeah, because John Williams helped with the solo theme. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember. pick that out. Yeah, I was trying to find that. So that's something I have to go back to maybe on the soundtrack of yeah. that. So, but overall, it was fantastic, yeah. the score. I, I like this one more than the Rogue One score, yeah. for sure. I oh, okay, think yeah. I have to see it again, but I'm mm. pretty close to that as well. On first viewing, yeah, I like mm. this one better. Yeah. Overall, I think. So... All right, guys. Well, we're on our way to Vandor. So this is kind of our last stop in the film. 
the Falcon itself does beat Dryden Voss. That's where they plan to meet with the unrefined Quaxium. It gets refined there, so this is something that they do accomplish. But they're tracked by Emphy's nest to Vandor. And this is where we get Lando kind of pissing off for the last time. He kind of leaves after being frustrated with the damage to the Falcon, the injury that he uh, sustained during the Kessel Revolution or whatever you want to call it. And this is where we really see Han become the good guy. Kira called him out when they first met on Dryden Voss's yacht about, I know who you really are. And, he, and she says, you're the good guy. Yeah. He says, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Mm-hmm. So this is a character trait that we see in Han through all of Star Wars, even into the books and all that. He's always trying to do the wrong thing, but always does the right thing in a roundabout way. So he came back in original a new hope. He did this all the stuff through for the rebellion. He does the right thing here. So we get the reveal of MVNS, which we've already talked about. So sees the rebellion. Like you said, we see Warwick Davis in there, two tubes and all that. So a bigger connection to the wider rebellion and the wider Star Wars universe. But Han becomes more sympathetic towards their cause and kind of concocts this overall plan to double cross Dryden Voss here. And they do it in a really kind of roundabout way that I like. It's this double cross, triple cross, I've brought you the real Quaxium, but it's he thinks it isn't, and then Beckett <laughs> double crosses him. So there's a lot going on here. It's a pretty dynamic scene, but I really like how they did it. It really felt Han Solo by the seat of your pants. And then the fight at the end with Dryden Voss and all that. To me, this feels like a plan that Han Solo would have put together. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. It, feels, it feels very Han Solo-esque. Did you guys like how this... Overall, how it kind of ended here with Dryden Voss, with Kira, with the exception of the big reveal, and Han Solo, him being more sympathetic to the rebellion. Yeah, you know, it's like you get a double cross, you get a double cross, you <laughs> yeah. get a double cross. Is after you know, it, it worked, but it kind of felt like a little bit after a while, you're just like, okay, like who's like no one's on the up and up. Everyone's like not on the level here. But you know what? It was fun. You know, it was a very fun scene because I was like, it kept me guessing. You know, I was like, oh, you got double cross. It's like, oh, he's bad. Oh, but then he got double cross, so he got double cross, double cross. So now he's like a quadruple cross. So now he's okay. Yeah, it's a bunch of bad. Well, some people are better. Yeah. It's a bunch of real kind of guys looking out for themselves by stealing the things, <laughs> double crossing each other. So it's kind of it's kind of a fun scene actually, although it's meant to be quite real. Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of like a Pirates of the Caribbean movie or something. Like Johnny Depp could have appeared as Captain Jack Sparrow or something. <laughs> yeah, I got that too. I got I got the Johnny Depp uh, pirates, and then I also got the Ocean's Eleven kind of stuff oh, going yeah. on back and forth. And I, and I loved it. And again, this goes into um, Voss. I really like his character at this point, where he's really like, yeah, you know, you almost had me here, but this isn't the right stuff because so and so's already informed me. And then the camera goes on Kira, and then you're thinking, okay, nice, it is Kira. Like we yeah. know it. She, she's, she's the traitor, the double crosser, right? Yeah. And then it's like, wait, no, it's not. So that worked for me. I really had like fun with that reveal, to mm-hmm. be honest, yeah. more than anything. Um, wasn't the biggest fan of the fight scene between Kira and Voss. I liked Voss and Solo for a second. Seeing Vo- um, Solo hold his own with a gun. Yeah. You know, a gun against his sabers was pretty cool. But then when Kira came out, I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, it's it's not bad. It, it, it works for me, I guess. But um, all around, I, I love this whole sequence, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a nice take as opposed to, like, every other Star Wars film where it's like the big battle goes on between the two, well, between the hero and the villain or the two hero slash villains in the film. <laughs> yeah so yeah <laughs> a bit confusing well yeah. beckett does the ultimate double cross where 
He double crosses Dryden Voss and he double crosses Han Solo. He takes the Coaxium and Chewbacca and takes off with plans on maybe selling this to someone else and leaving them to all die here with Dryden Voss. And eventually we see the battle kind of come to fruition with Kira killing Voss and then Han at Kira's request going and chasing after Becca and Chewbacca. And this is where we kind of get that reference to Han shooting first. Yes. Beckett offers up some advice towards the end of the film here about you, th- you figure he was going to say, yo, we shoot first, right? Mm-hmm. Something to that effect, but they never really quite yes. get there. So we do see the end of Beckett here. We also see Kira kind of floating off in the distance. So yeah. Han Solo is left on his own here with Chewbacca with some information at hand that there's a gangster on Tatooine. <laughs> I called that out. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and they kind of fly off first stop to get the Falcon, but overall they're flying towards Tatooine and investing themselves a lot larger into the crime syndicate world, into this organization, into the underground of the Star Wars universe. So we do get one final scene here before we get to this kind of big reveal, and it's the infamous Sabacc game. Mm -hmm. He finds Lando Calrissian, who's wearing just something awesome, that big yellow whatever he's wearing. (laughs) It's a Hot Topic exclusive pop, by the way. So... Did this work for you? Did this game of Sabacc? Like, we had one earlier that was a pretty cool scene. You get kind of the cantina vibe there. A lot of great interaction. Hey, Han. Hey. Love that call it again. So, what you guys thoughts on, on the game of Sabacc? Like, did this play out how you wanted it to? The no. winning of the Millennium Falcon, that story? <laughs> no, because... It- because we know the outcome, and this is where I'm confused, because when we get to Empire, am I meant to believe they have not seen each other since this part? All the way to Empire? Because if that's the case, then that's kind of a letdown. Because in Empire, you know, Lando's pissed yeah. with yeah. Han. He's like, you double-crossing, whatever, you know, you took my ship. And you're like, well, Han really screwed over Lando. But then you're like, well, not really, Lando. Like, you were playing Han the whole time. So, you know, it's not that big of a deal, in a sense. So I thought it was going to be something way more, like, scoundrel-like yeah. from oh, Han's perspective. Yeah. I've got a feeling that this isn't the last time the so. ship changes hands, maybe. I'm not sure. Okay. Like... They, they're definitely implying this, but there needs to be more backstory. Like, they've literally spent two days together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot, but when you see them in Empire, there's an assumption that there's a much larger backstory. Yeah. There, yeah. And I want more of that. Yeah. And I don't know, is that in Last Shot, maybe? I don't know if there's some stuff I don't know. I that think goes on in that, that book. happens most of it, at least before. But I have to believe there's something bigger here. Yeah. yeah. Like, there's a bigger story behind this. Is this the game of Spock? Probably. But is there more to the double crossing between Lando yeah. and Han? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I'd like I, to believe so, at least. I, I hope so. And that's why I was worried about with this film, with his anthology films. I feel like you need to wrap those things up in there instead of banking on giving us a sequel. Because yeah. we most likely won't get a sequel <laughs> in this film. Unless if they just did a Lando yeah. spinoff. But yeah. even then, they still got to be careful, right? Um, yeah. Uh, the one thing I had a question about is uh, Han, or Han Solo's dice. Like, the, yeah. you know, like you thought it would play a big part. I don't know, like, in the original trilogy, I can't remember it making an appearance in there. It's only in A New Hope, I think. Like, there's, like, a shot of it. And there's a cut scene from Force Awakens when the dice are in it. And then you see them in The Last Jedi. In The Last Jedi. So it's more of a nod than oh, it is okay. anything relevant, I think. Because I know, like, uh, Kira gives it to Han when, like, they're about to leave and stuff. So, like, okay, like, a little bit more backstory. Because they keep, like, showing these dice and stuff. And I keep expecting them to, like... Maybe I thought like the dice would be like how he would beat Lando yeah, to right. win the Millennium They'd Falcon. They factor into yeah. something bigger, and yeah. that would have yeah. been better. That would have honestly been a lot better because these dice 
nobody really knew much about these dice. And then yeah. they hyped it up since Last Jedi, I guess you could say. And then it's like, it doesn't make any sense. No. It's, it's very weird that it's something that he got from his ex-girlfriend that would <laughs> yeah. now be given to his wife. You know, from Luke. Like yeah, it, that like double-crossed him. and yeah, yeah, it's just like that's the last thing she'd probably want. From, from her, you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? It just didn't work for me They should have played a bit more significance, I agree. Yeah. In, in the overall idea of what or how he won a Sabacc game or something. You know what right. I mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't know what came first. I don't know if it Last Jedi was like, hey, let's pick that up. Or if the Han Solo film was like, let's do this for The Last Jedi. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't oh, know yeah. which. It serves yeah. as a wider nod, but... It's implied that there's something bigger as because they did wait to some significance because even Ben picks them up and knows what they are. Yeah, like yeah. or Kylo, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah, it was kind of it was kind of a weird thread that they didn't really run with too much. Yeah. I agree with you on that one. Yeah. So let's let's talk about this this last what I'm gonna call mid credit scene here. It's not really a mid credit scene, but it very much feels like one. Oh yeah. Very Marvel esque, and this is the yes. Marvel esque tease that was was kind of thrown out of there from the world premiere, and alone aboard the yacht. Uh, Kira does call Voss's boss, the bigger boss. There's always a bigger boss, like I said, in Star Wars. <laughs> and it's revealed to be Maul. Yes. Yeah. I damn near ripped my wife's hand off <laughs> with this. You know, I, I this totally caught me off guard. I really loved it, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. I thought it was so cool. Like, you see the legs, the, the, the robotic legs, the hood's up, yes. he pulls it down, and you're like, wow. Whoa. The lightsaber that he pulls in is a lightsaber from Rebels. Yeah. And it's incredible. Like, did you guys have that same reaction? Like, this is one of my favorite cameos of all time. <laughs> this was nuts. This, this was absolutely nuts. I remember, you know, it's classic Star Wars. You get the the hologram. And I think we hear the, the voice first. Yeah. But I see the legs and instantly... Sam Whitworth that does the voice. Yeah, that's right. And instantly I bumped my wife. I'm like, that's Maul. Because just the robotic legs. And I just keyed in. I'm like, it can't be the Empire. It can't be Vader. And I was just like, Maul, this is crazy. What is Maul doing in this film? And then again, I feel sorry for Sanjay because I start nudging (laughs) Sanjay. You know, this is nuts. Next time you're sitting beside me too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I thought it was so cool. Like, just a fantastic cameo. But then it leads another thing dangling. Like, what are they seeing with this? Because we've had Maul come back constantly throughout Star Wars. His story wrapped up this year, last year with uh, with Rebels, yeah. obviously. And then as a general audience, you're like, wait, I thought this guy died in episode one. That so, was my thinking. Right? So then you're wondering, does this take place before episode one? Or you're wondering, how the heck did this guy survive? And then at the same time, I'm like, I'm glad Disney did this because Kevin Feige's been training the audience to like, just Google it. Just, just Google it. You know, like, like we do this with the comic books all the times. We do this with the uh, Marvel movies all the time. So it's just like, have some fun, just research it. And I think this was so cool. So I'm so glad Disney did this. Yes. Love this. So this doesn't take place before episode no. one. <laughs> so okay, let, let's this. And this you're gonna have to help me out here, Troy, yeah. because there's a little confusion from my end a little bit too. So in the timeline, this takes place after Revenge of the Sith. So in between episodes three and four, probably a bit closer to episode four. We're talking maybe. Based off of kind of the seat of the rebellion, I'm gonna say like seven, six, seven years before the events of A New Hope. Okay. And you had 18 years there between episode three and episode four. So we're still quite a ways out from Rogue One, episode four, but quite well removed from episode three. We know from the Clone Wars that post episode one and his apparent death, 
He is revived in the Clone Wars. He has a big part in the Clone Wars. And he does show back up in Star Wars Rebels and has quite a large arc in there as well. Very important arc. I'm not going to spoil any of that. So he is essentially present up to almost a new hope. So he's, he's alive all through there. The part I'm confused at, because my assumption originally, and I had to go back and look and see where all this fell, was this was a reference to the Shadow Council. Right. Or Shadow Collective, sorry. Yeah. And that was a collective of crime syndicates that Dahl, Dahl, that Maul essentially ran. So this was composed of Black Sun, the Pike Syndicate, which is mentioned in here, uh, the Huts, the Death Watch, uh, the Knight Brothers, and now you can throw in Crimson Dawn into this. Yeah. But that all kind of dissolved during the Clone Wars, correct? Well, yeah, a little bit afterwards, because yeah. in the Clone Wars, they didn't get to finish up, but he is captured by Palpatine. Palpatine kills his brother, Sav- Sav- Savage Oppress. Yeah, Savage Oppress, yeah. Yeah, so then Maul is left captured from Palpatine, but then he escapes, and he continues to do more stuff with Death Watch. Because he's never really started anything, he's kind of just joined them, but he's led them. But this uh, crime... The Crimson, or the Crimson, the Crimson, Crimson Dawn. Dawn is his. I feel like is his his own thing that he's finally established on his own, right? Okay. So the Death Watch was more of the Mandalorian stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the Huts and all that. Yeah. So I, I took it more as he was a leader of this collective, right? Like of all the syndicates. So if you take like an Illuminati, yeah, of crime syndicates, he was kind of the leader of it. Exactly. So that's I think what they're seeding more is, and this is my guess would be they're going to pick this up either in Favreau's series. Or in Benioff and Weiss's series, and the idea of the crime syndicate. So you're going to look at the Pikes, the Crimson Dawn, all of this, and Maul's going to be essentially, not, I don't want to say you're Thanos or Emperor, but he's going to be kind of the figurehead of all these crime syndicates. So you're going to visit the Huts, you're going to visit all this, and Maul's going to have a piece in this. The problem yeah. is, I, I do, it's a it's a very big thread that's kind of left dangling. Yeah, and it's a hard place to put them because we know in Rebels, not spoiling anything, but there's a certain period, especially when we get the Ahsoka episode, Twilight Apprentice, he's been on Mandalore, or not Mandalore, sorry, he's been on Malachor yeah. for quite some time. You know, like the, the, something's gone on there where he's not in power anymore. So I'm wondering what's going on because I believe the lightsaber he has isn't it the Inquisitor's lightsaber. Which doesn't make any sense because when we see him... It's not like the round Inquisitor lightsaber. It's no. the one he has in Rebels that has kind of the claw that comes off the edge of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be... The difficult part about Maul is that he's got so much canonical story that's been told around him that they're trying to fit into a very small window yes. without overstepping the Clone Wars. Or rebels, so they've got a very narrow window to tell a bigger story yeah. with Maul. What's well, the rebels? It's the rebels gap that I'm having an issue with. Where do you fit that? Because right now, like, it's, it's after all Death before Amir, he's escaped, right? So that's fine. Yes, it's he, all before rebels, but it's like the time is getting very close to that meeting on Malachor. Yeah. So it's like they, they have to they have to bridge that gap because something's happened where he's he's pretty old on Malachor. He's he become has, the old master. Or whatever, yeah, the Yoda in reverse in yeah. a sense, right? Whereas here he doesn't look that old, older, but not. To that point yeah exactly right? so yeah they've got they've got some work to do i love the reveal though oh incredible i yeah. thought i thought it was incredible. a lot of fun and you know what could this lead into a fet film could this connect to a bigger universe could this connect to a tv show or something like that i really think so yeah. so i think like spoilers for infinity war here but we already said that was kind of <laughs> off after a month but between the red skull reveal and this reveal back-to-back films 
like heart stopping. It's massive. Like, red, all abs- red faces are getting exactly. revealed. This is, massive. this is massive. Who else has a red face that'll come out next? I don't know. I think we got them all. <laughs> There's only two. Red Hulk. <laughs> yeah. Revan. Give us yeah. Revan next. Oh, the yeah, Red Hulk. Uh, well, that would have been something. Eh? That would have been. Imagine that. Mind blown. Yeah. Anyways, you know, I think that kind of wraps it up for the review here. I think we got through most of it. Again, like we say with all of our movie reviews, the big caveat that we put on here is that we may have missed something, but this is something that we're going to continue to come back and revisit from week on week out. Hopefully we get some questions in the coming weeks that allow us to revisit some of these ideas. And if you yourself have some ideas or if we've missed something, if you want us to comment on something in a bit broader sense, you can always email us at thenerdram at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook or at YouTube. You can also grab us on Twitter. Our handles are always at the end of the episode. And be sure to hit us up at thenerdroom.net. You can find all our podcasts there and you can also contact us through the contacts page. But with that being said, guys, the last thing that we always do on reviews is our recommendations. So I got to say, I got to ask, do you guys recommend Solo, a Star Wars story? I do, actually. And I don't. I recommend not going to see it solo because it needs lots of money for me to win that <laughs> box office fantasy. Uh, seriously, though, yeah, absolutely. I recommend it. Um, I may have been overly critical with some nitpicks, but they were just like minor things that didn't take away my overall enjoyment of the film. You know, when they're going on, I kind of like stop for a second. I was like, well, what about this? But then after the movie moves at such a breakneck pace that you kind of forget about it and you're on to the next thing. And the action is great. It just, you know, it just goes, goes, goes. And it's a lot of fun. Like this movie is a lot of fun. I enjoyed myself at the theater. It's definitely like a good summer flick. Like this is a perfect popcorn film. Yeah. And this is going to be a movie that's going to be great on TV where you, when it shows up on TV, wherever it's at, you're just going to watch it to the end because yep. there's so much fun and so many good moments coming through. So absolutely recommend it. Uh, yeah. Check it out. Yeah. I'm out. Oh. Definitely recommend it. Highly recommend this film. It's it's fantastic. Alden Ehrwright does such a great job. You know, give this kid all the credit because he had tough shoes to fill, and I think he nailed it mm-hmm. in every way. Lando is fantastic. Um, Kira's great in the first bit of the movie. I, I feel like, um, is it Emily... Clark. Emily Clark Amelia or Clark. Amelia Clark. I, I feel like she still hasn't just broken out onto the big screen just mm-hmm. yet, and this film still doesn't do it for her, but this is the best... Uh, cinematic performance she's had on the big screen so that was great everybody's characterizations was just fantastic I love it it's uh, it's a must see just to see Maul out there and you get the whole Duel of Fates score too in the background like that's a must see man Um, an order like like a, a Star Wars order I think I still go Empire number one obviously all day I, I love Force Awakens so that is number two Revenge of the Sith for me will always sit around number three. I put A New Hope number four. I put Solo between episode four and... Yeah, it's up there. So I put Solo five. Wow. Yeah, Return the Jedi six. And then I go Phantom Menace number seven. And then I go Last Jedi. And then I go Attack of the Clones. You Rogue One, did you? Oh, yeah. I didn't put Rogue One there. I'll put Rogue One just... Damn. I'll put Rogue One just above attack of the clones yeah yeah rogue one still sits pretty low for me wow yeah and then and then the clone wars tv show or cartoon (laughs) cartoon sorry tv show is great cartoons not even on on my list oh i guess i should give my list yeah um okay so i go force awakens one uh empire two um new hope three um probably then uh rogue one four uh episode three five 
and then um, I'd probably go uh, episode six um, next, and then solo, and then oh wait, did I say Rogue One yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yep. yeah, and then solo, and then um, uh, Attack of the Clones. Actually, no, Last Jedi, Attack of the Clones, and then Phantom Menace for me is the last one. All right. Interesting. All well, right, all right. We'll see. I'm not, I'm not willing to put my, my list out there. <laughs> Boy, yes. I need to see this film again. My list is, is quite fluid. But as far as recommendation goes, yeah, this is a 100% recommendation for me. Um, get out there and see this film. If you're a Star Wars fan of any kind, you're going to enjoy this film. You're going to enjoy the references. You're going to enjoy the portrayals of the characters. And this is really the first time outside of Ewan McGregor, which is quite far removed, of someone going back, characters, several characters going back, and taking well-established fan-favorite characters and giving them kind of a fresh-faced look. I think they nail it. I think they do a really good job. They had, like you said, Troy, really hard shoes to fill, both both Glover and Alden Einreich. Alden Einreich and they did a really great job. The story itself, Ron Howard pulled this thing off. Yep. It is, is well done. It's well-crafted. It's really fast economic story time. Yeah, there's a few things here and there that we nitpicked, but nothing major. This is a Star Wars film through and through. Get out there and see this for sure. As far as my list, I'm not going to place any of this right now, but I will say this is ranks above the 50% bar. Like it's yeah. it's in that five, six range for me. And you know what? Like I got to see this again, but it's definitely in there. Like I don't know if I like it better than Rogue One quite yet, but and Rogue One's quite high on my list. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's 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 rocking in there. Like this is nice. one of my favorite Star Wars films. It's something different, something that is unexpected. It's right up there for me, and I absolutely really enjoyed it. So with that being said, guys, I think it's time for us to sign off for our review of Solo, a Star Wars story. And until next week, if you got questions, make sure to send them our way. And get out there and see Solo. We'll be back next week to cover all the latest in Star Wars Marvel and DC big news drops. And of course, we'll be talking a bit more about Solo and the implications for the larger Star Wars universe. So until next week, gentlemen, for the Nerd Room, I'm Tim. I'm Troy. And I'm Sanjay. And thank you for entering the Nerd Room. This has been a Nerd Room Podcast production. You can find our hosts, Tim, Troy, and Sanjay on Twitter at TheNerdRM, TroyTheBoy87, and Sanjabi. For more content from The Nerd Room, check out thenerdroom.net. Don't forget to subscribe to The Nerd Room on iTunes, Podbean, and YouTube. Be sure to head over to StarWarsCommonwealth.com to find more podcasts in the Star Wars Commonwealth Podcast Network, including Talk Star Wars, Tumbling Saber, Generation X-Wing, Rogue Squadron Podcast, Skyrim Podcast, and San Diego Sabers. Follow the Star Wars Commonwealth on Twitter at SWCommonwealth and take your first steps into a larger world.